Chapter Fifty of the Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask, by Alexandre Dumas, Chapter Fifty, The Death of a Titan. At the moment when Porthos, more accustomed to the darkness than these men coming from open daylight, was looking round him to see if through this artificial midnight Aramis were not making him some signal, he felt his arm gently touched, and a voice low as a breath murmured in his ear, "'Come!' "'Oh!' said Porthos. "'Hush!' said Aramis, if possible, yet more softly. And amidst the noise of the third brigade, which continued to advance, the imprecations of the guards still left alive, the muffled groans of the dying, Aramis and Porthos glided unseen along the granite walls of the cavern. Aramis led Porthos into the last but one compartment, and showed him, in a hollow of the rocky wall, a barrel of powder weighing from seventy to eighty pounds, to which he had just attached a fuse. "'My friend,' said he to Porthos, "'you will take this barrel, the match of which I am going to set fire to, and throw it amidst our enemies. Can you do so?' Pabble, replied Porthos, and he lifted the barrel with one hand. Light it. Stop, said Aramis, till they are all massed together, and then, my Jupiter, hurl your thunderbolt among them. Light it, repeated Porthos. On my part, continued Aramis, I will join our Bretons and help them to get the canoe to the sea. I will wait for you on the shore, launch it strongly, and hasten to us. "'Light it!' said Porthos a third time. "'But do you understand me?' "'Pabble!' said Porthos again, with laughter that he did not even attempt to restrain. "'When a thing is explained to me, I understand it. Be gone, and give me the light!' Aramis gave the burning match to Porthos, who held out his arm to him, his hands being engaged. Aramis pressed the arm of Porthos with both his hands, and fell back to the outlet of the cavern, where the three rowers awaited him. Porthos, left alone, applied the spark bravely to the match. The spark, a feeble spark, first principle of conflagration, shone in the darkness like a glow-worm, then was deadened against the match which it set fire to, Porthos enlivening the flame with his breath. The smoke was a little dispersed, and by the light of the sparkling match objects might, for two seconds, be distinguished. It was a brief but splendid spectacle, that of this giant, pale, bloody, his countenance lighted by the fire of the match burning in surrounding darkness. The soldiers saw him. They saw the barrel he held in his hand. They at once understood what was going to happen. Then these men, already choked with horror at the sight of what had been accomplished, filled with terror at the thought of what was about to be accomplished, gave out a simultaneous shriek of agony. Some endeavoured to fly, but they encountered the third brigade, which barred their passage. Others mechanically took aim and attempted to fire their discharged muskets. Others fell instinctively upon their knees. Two or three officers cried out to Porthos to promise him his liberty if he would spare their lives. The lieutenant of the third brigade commanded his men to fire, but the guards had before them their terrified companions, 
who served as a living rampart for Porthos. We have said that the light produced by the spark and the match did not last more than two seconds, but during these two seconds that is what it illumined. In the first place, the giant, enlarged in the darkness, then, at ten paces off, a heap of bleeding bodies, crushed, mutilated, in the midst of which some still heaved in the last agony, lifting the mass as a last respiration, inflating the sides of some old monster dying in the night. Every breath of Porthos, thus vivifying the match, sent towards this heap of bodies a phosphorescent aura, mingled with streaks of purple. In addition to this principal group scattered about the grotto, as the chances of death or surprise had stretched them, isolated bodies seemed to be making ghastly exhibitions of their gaping wounds. Above ground, bedded in pools of blood, rose, heavy and sparkling, the short, thick pillars of the cavern, of which the strongly marked shades threw out the luminous particles. And all this was seen by the tremulous light of a match, attached to a barrel of powder, that is to say, a torch which, whilst throwing a light on the dead past, showed death to come. As I have said, this spectacle did not last above two seconds. During this short space of time, an officer of the 3rd Brigade got together eight men armed with muskets, and, through an opening, ordered them to fire upon Porthos. But they who received the order to fire trembled so that three guards fell by the discharge, and the five remaining balls hissed on to splinter the vault, plough the ground, or indent the pillars of the cavern. A burst of laughter replied to this volley, then the arm of the giant swung round, then was seen whirling through the air, like a falling star, the train of fire. The barrel, hurled a distance of thirty feet, cleared the barricade of dead bodies, and fell amidst a group of shrieking soldiers, who threw themselves on their faces. The officer had followed the brilliant train in the air, he endeavoured to precipitate himself upon the barrel and tear out the match before it reached the powder it contained. Useless. The air had made the flame attached to the conductor more active. The match, which at rest might have burnt five minutes, was consumed in thirty seconds, and the infernal work exploded. Furious vortices of sulphur and nitre, devouring shoals of fire which caught every object, the terrible thunder of the explosion— this is what the second which followed disclosed in that cavern of horrors. The rocks split like planks of deal beneath the axe. A jet of fire, smoke, and debris sprang from the middle of the grotto, enlarging as it mounted. The large walls of silex tottered and fell upon the sand, and the sand itself, an instrument of pain when launched from its hard bed, riddled the faces with its myriad-cutting atoms. Shrieks, imprecations, human life, dead bodies, all were engulfed in one terrific crash. The first three compartments became one sepulchral sink into which fell grimly back, in the order of their weight, every vegetable, mineral, or human fragment. Then the lighter sand and ash came down in turn, stretching like a winding sheet, and smoking over the dismal scene. And now, in this burning tomb, this subterranean volcano, seek the king's guards with their blue coats laced with silver, seek the officers, brilliant in gold, 
seek for the arms upon which they depended for their defence. One single man has made of all these things a chaos more confused, more shapeless, more terrible than the chaos which existed before the creation of the world. There remained nothing of the three compartments, nothing by which God could have recognized his handiwork. As for Porthos, after having hurled the barrel of powder amidst his enemies, he had fled, as Aramis had directed him to do, and had gained the last compartment, into which air, light, and sunshine penetrated through the opening. Scarcely had he turned the angle which separated the third compartment from the fourth, when he perceived at a hundred paces from him the bark dancing on the waves. There were his friends, their liberty, their life and victory. Six more of his formidable strides, and he would be out of the vault, out of the vault. A dozen of his vigorous leaps, and he would reach the canoe. Suddenly, he felt his knees give way. His knees seemed powerless, his legs to yield beneath him. "'Oh, oh!' murmured he. "'There is my weakness seizing me again. I can walk no further. What is this?' Aramis perceived him through the opening, and unable to conceive what could induce him to stop thus. "'Come on, Porthos, come on!' he cried. "'Come quickly!' "'Oh!' replied the giant, making an effort that contorted every muscle of his body. "'Oh, but I cannot!' While saying these words he fell upon his knees, but with his mighty hands he clung to the rocks and raised himself up again. "'Quick, quick!' repeated Aramis, bending forward towards the shore, as if to draw Porthos towards him with his arms. "'Here I am!' staggered Porthos, collecting all his strength to make one step more. "'In the name of heaven! Porthos, make haste! The barrel will blow up!' "'Make haste, Monseigneur!' shouted the Bretons to Porthos, who was floundering as in a dream. But there was no time. The explosion thundered. Earth gaped. The smoke which hurled through the clefts obscured the sky. The sea flowed back as though driven by the blast of flame which darted from the grotto, as if from the jaws of some gigantic fiery chimera. The reflux took the bark out twenty toises. The solid rocks cracked to their base, and separated like blocks beneath the operation of the wedge. A portion of the vault was carried up towards heaven, as if it had been built of cardboard. The green and blue and topaz conflagration and black lava of liquefactions clashed and combated an instant beneath a majestic dome of smoke, then oscillated, declined and fell successively the mighty monoliths of rock which the violence of the explosion had not been able to uproot from the bed of ages. They bowed to each other like grave and stiff old men, then, prostrating themselves, lay down forever in their dusty tomb. This frightful shock seemed to restore Porthos the strength that he had lost. He arose, a giant among granite giants, but at the moment he was flying between the double hedge of granite phantoms, these latter, which were no longer supported by the corresponding links, began to roll and totter round our titan, who looked as if precipitated from heaven amidst rocks which he had just been launching. Porthos felt the very earth beneath his feet becoming jelly-tremulous. He stretched both hands to repulse the falling rocks. A gigantic block was held back by each of his extended arms. 
he bent his head, and a third granite mass sank between his shoulders. For an instant, the power of Porthos seemed about to fail him, but this new Hercules united all his force, and the two walls of the prison in which he was buried fell back slowly and gave him place. For an instant he appeared, in this frame of granite, like the angel of chaos, but in pushing back the lateral rocks he lost his point of support, for the monolith which weighed upon his shoulders, and the boulder pressing upon him with all its weight, brought the giant down upon his knees. The lateral rocks, for an instant pushed back, drew together again, and added their weight to the ponderous mass which would have been sufficient to crush ten men. The hero fell without a groan. He fell while answering Aramis with words of encouragement and hope, for, thanks to the powerful arch of his hands, for an instant he believed that, like Enceladus, he would succeed in shaking off the triple load. But by degrees Aramis beheld the block sink, the hands strung for an instant, the arms stiffened for a last effort, gave way, the extended shoulders sank, wounded and torn, and the rocks continued to gradually collapse. "'Porthos! Porthos!' cried Aramis, tearing his hair. "'Porthos! Where are you? Speak!' "'Here! Here!' murmured Porthos, with a voice growing evidently weaker. "'Patience! Patience!' Scarcely had he pronounced these words when the impulse of the fall augmented the weight. The enormous rock sank down, pressed by those others which sank in from the sides, and, as it were, swallowed up Porthos in a sepulchre of badly jointed stones. On hearing the dying voice of his friend, Aramis had sprung to land. Two of the Bretons followed him, with each a lever in his hand, one being sufficient to take care of the bark. The dying rattle of the valiant gladiator guided them amidst the ruins. Aramis, animated, active, and young as at twenty, sprang towards the triple mass, and with his hands, delicate as those of a woman, raised by a miracle of strength the cornerstone of this great granite grave. Then he caught a glimpse, through the darkness of that carnal house, of the still brilliant eye of his friend, to whom the momentary lifting of the mass restored a momentary respiration. The two men came rushing up, grasped their iron levers, united their triple strength, not merely to raise it, but sustain it. All was useless. They gave way with cries of grief, and the rough voice of Porthos, seeing them exhaust themselves in a useless struggle, murmured in an almost cheerful tone, those supreme words which came to his lips with the last respiration, "'Too heavy!' After which his eyes darkened and closed. His face grew ashy pale, the hands whitened, and the colossus sank quite down, breathing his last sigh. With him sank the rock, which, even in his dying agony, he had still held up. The three men dropped the levers, which rolled upon the tumulary stone. Then, breathless, pale, his brow covered with sweat, Aramis listened, his breast oppressed, his heart ready to break. Nothing more. The giant slept the eternal sleep, 
in the sepulchre which God had built about him to his measure. End of chapter Chapter Fifty One of The Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter Fifty One Porthos Epitaph. Aramis, silent and sad as ice, trembling like a timid child arose shivering from the stone. A Christian does not walk on tombs, but, though capable of standing, he was not capable of walking. It might be said that something of dead Porthos had just died within him. His Bretons surrounded him. Aramis yielded to their kind exertions, and the three sailors, lifting him up, carried him to the canoe. Then, having laid him down upon the bench near the rudder, they took to their oars, preferring this to hoisting sail, which might betray them. On all that levelled surface of the ancient grotto of Lochmaria, one single hillock attracted their eyes. Aramis never removed his from it, and at a distance out in the sea, in proportion as the shore receded, that menacing proud mass of rock seemed to draw itself up, as formerly Porthos used to draw himself up, raising a smiling, yet invincible head towards heaven, like that of his dear old honest, valiant friend, the strongest of the four, yet the first dead. Strange destiny of these men of brass! The most simple of heart allied to the most crafty, strength of body guided by subtlety of mind, and in the decisive moment, when vigour alone could save mind and body, a stone— a rock, a vile material weight, triumphed over manly strength, and falling upon the body, drove out the mind. Worthy Porthos, born to help other men, always ready to sacrifice himself for the safety of the weak, as if God had only given him strength for that purpose. When dying he only thought he was carrying out the conditions of his compact with Aramis, a compact, however, which Aramis alone had drawn up, and which Porthos had only known to suffer by its terrible solidarity. Noble Porthos, of what good now are thy chateau, overflowing with sumptuous furniture, forests overflowing with game, lakes overflowing with fish, cellars overflowing with wealth? Of what service to thee now thy lackeys in brilliant liveries, and in the midst of them Mousqueton, proud of the power delegated by thee. O oh, noble Porthos, careful heaper-up of treasure, was it worth while to labour to sweeten and gild life, to come upon a desert shore, surrounded by the cries of seagulls, and lay thyself with broken bones beneath the torpid stone? Was it worth while, in short, noble Porthos, to heap so much gold, and not have even the distich of a poor poet engraven upon thy monument. Valiant Porthos, he still, without doubt, sleeps, lost, forgotten, beneath the rock the shepherds of the heath take for the gigantic abode of a dolmen, and so many twining branches, so many mosses, 
bent by the bitter wind of ocean, so many lichens solder thy sepulchre to earth, that no passers-by will imagine such a block of granite could ever have been supported by the shoulders of one man. Aramis, still pale, still icy cold, his heart upon his lips, looked, even till, with the last ray of daylight, the shore faded on the horizon. Not a word escaped him. Not a sigh rose from his deep breast. The superstitious Bretons looked upon him, trembling. Such silence was not that of a man. It was the silence of a statue. In the meantime, with the first grey lines that lighted up the heavens, the canoe hoisted its little sail, which, swelling with the kisses of the breeze, and carrying them rapidly from the coast, made bravest way towards Spain, across the dreaded Gulf of Gascony, so rife with storms. But scarcely half an hour after the sail had been hoisted, the rowers became inactive, reclining on their benches, and making an eye-shade with their hands, pointed out to each other a white spot which appeared on the horizon, as motionless as a gull rocked by the viewless respiration of the waves. But that which might have appeared motionless to ordinary eyes was moving at a quick rate to the experienced eye of the sailor. That which appeared stationary upon the ocean was cutting a rapid way through it. For some time, seeing the profound torpor in which their master was plunged, they did not dare to rouse him, and satisfied themselves with exchanging their conjectures in whispers. Aramis, in fact, so vigilant, so active, Aramis, whose eye, like that of the lynx, watched without ceasing, and saw better by night than by day. Aramis seemed to sleep in this despair of soul. An hour passed thus, during which daylight gradually disappeared, but during which also the sail in view gained so swiftly on the bark that Gawain, one of the three sailors, ventured to say aloud, "'Monseigneur, we are being chased!' Aramis made no reply. The ship still gained upon them. Then, of their own accord, two of the sailors, by the direction of the patron Eve, lowered the sail, in order that that single point upon the surface of the waters should cease to be a guide to the eye of the enemy pursuing them. On the part of the ship in sight, on the contrary, two more small sails were run up at the extremities of the masts. Unfortunately, it was the time of the finest and longest days of the year, and the moon, in all her brilliancy, succeeded in auspicious daylight. The balancelle, which was pursuing the little bark before the wind, had then still half an hour of twilight, and a whole night almost as light as day. "'Monseigneur, Monseigneur, we are lost,' said the captain. "'Look, they see us plainly, though we have lowered sail.' "'That is not to be wondered at.' murmured one of the sailors, since they say that, by the aid of the devil, the Paris folk have fabricated instruments with which they see as well at a distance as near, by night as well as by day. Aramis took a telescope from the bottom of the boat, focused it silently, and passing it to the sailor, Here, said he, look. The sailor hesitated. Don't be alarmed, said the bishop. There is no sin in it, and if there is any sin, I will take it on myself. The sailor lifted the glass to his eye, and uttered a cry. 
he believed that the vessel, which appeared to be distant about cannon-shot, had at a single bound cleared the whole distance. But, on withdrawing the instrument from his eye, he saw that, except the way which the balancelle had been able to make during that brief instant, it was still at the same distance. So, murmured the sailor, they can see us as we see them. They see us, said Aramis, and sank again into impassibility. What? They see us? said Eve. Impossible. Well, Captain, look yourself, said the sailor, and he passed him the glass. Monseigneur assures me that the devil has nothing to do with this? asked Eve. Aramis shrugged his shoulders. The skipper lifted the glass to his eye. "'Oh, Monseigneur,' said he, "'it is a miracle. There they are. It seems as if I were going to touch them. Twenty-five men at least. Ah, I see the captain forward. He holds a glass like this and is looking at us. Ah, he turns round and gives an order. They are rolling a piece of cannon forward. They are loading it, pointing it. Misericordia, they are firing at us! And by a mechanical movement, the skipper put aside the telescope, and the pursuing ship, relegated to the horizon, appeared again in its true aspect. The vessel was still at the distance of nearly a league, but the manoeuvre sighted thus was not less real. A light cloud of smoke appeared beneath the sails, more blue than they, and spreading like a flower opening. Then, at about a mile from the little canoe, they saw the ball take the crown off two or three waves, dig a white furrow in the sea, and disappear at the end of it, as inoffensive as the stone with which, in play, a boy makes ducks and drakes. It was at once a menace and a warning. "'What is to be done?' asked the patron. "'They will sink us,' said Gawain. "'Give us absolution, Monseigneur.' and the sailors fell on their knees before him. "'You forget that they can see you,' said he. "'That is true,' said the sailors, ashamed of their weakness. "'Give us your orders, Monseigneur. We are prepared to die for you.' "'Let us wait,' said Aramis. "'How? Let us wait.' "'Yes, do you not see, as you just now said?' that if we endeavour to fly, they will sink us. But perhaps, the patron ventured to say, perhaps under cover of night we could escape them. Oh, said Aramis, they have, no doubt, Greek fire with which to lighten their own course, and ours likewise. At the same moment, as if the vessel was responsive to the appeal of Aramis, a second cloud of smoke mounted slowly to the heavens, and from the bosom of that cloud sparkled an arrow of flame, which described a parabola like a rainbow, and fell into the sea, where it continued to burn, illuminating a space of a quarter of a league in diameter. The Bretons looked at each other in terror. "'You see plainly,' said Aramis, "'it will be better to wait for them.' The oars dropped from the hands of the sailors, and the bark, ceasing to make way, rocked motionless upon the summits of the waves. Night came on, but still the ship drew nearer. It might be imagined it redoubled its speed with darkness. From time to time, as a vulture rears his head out of its nest, 
the formidable Greek fire darted from its sides, and cast its flame upon the ocean like an incandescent snowfall. At last it came within musket-shot. All the men were on deck, arms in hand. The cannoneers were at their guns, the matches burning. It might be thought they were about to board a frigate, and to fight a crew superior in number to their own, not to attempt the capture of a canoe manned by four people. "'Surrender!' cried the commander of the balancelle, with the aid of his speaking-trumpet. The sailors looked at Aramis. Aramis made a sign with his head. Eve waved a white cloth at the end of a gaff. This was like striking their flag. The pursuer came on like a racehorse. It launched a fresh Greek fire, which fell within twenty paces of the little canoe, and threw a light upon them as white as sunshine. "'At the first sign of resistance!' cried the commander of the balancelle. "'Fire!' The soldiers brought their muskets to the present. "'Did we not say we surrendered?' said Eve. "'Alive! Alive, Captain!' cried one excited soldier. "'They must be taken alive!' "'Well, yes, living,' said the captain. Then, turning toward the Bretons, "'Your lives are safe, my friends,' cried he. "'All but the Chevalier d'Herblay.' Aramis stared imperceptibly. For an instant his eye was fixed upon the depths of the ocean, illumined by the last flashes of the Greek fire, which ran along the sides of the waves, played on the crests like plumes, and rendered still darker and more terrible the gulfs they covered. "'Do you hear, Monseigneur?' said the sailors. "'Yes.' "'What are your orders?' "'Accept.' "'But you, Monseigneur?' Aramis leaned still more forward, and dipped the ends of his long white fingers in the green limpid waters of the sea, to which he turned with smiles, as to a friend. "'Accept.' repeated he. "'We accept,' repeated the sailors. "'But what security have we?' "'The word of a gentleman,' said the officer. "'By my rank and by my name, I swear that all except Monsieur de Chevalier d'Herblay shall have their lives spared. I am lieutenant of the King's frigate the Pomona, and my name is Louis-Constant de Pressigny.' With a rapid gesture, Aramis, already bent over the side of the bark towards the sea, drew himself up, and with a flashing eye and a smile upon his lips, "'Throw out the ladder, messieurs,' said he, as if the command had belonged to him. He was obeyed. When Aramis, seizing the rope ladder, walked straight up to the commander, with a firm step, looked at him earnestly, made a sign to him with his hand, a mysterious and unknown sign, at sight of which the officer turned pale, trembled, and bowed his head. The sailors were profoundly astonished. Without a word, Aramis then raised his hand to the eyes of the commander, and showed him the collet of a ring he wore on the ring-finger of his left hand. And while making this sign, Aramis, draped in cold and haughty majesty, had the air of an emperor giving his hand to be kissed. The commandant, who for a moment had raised his head, bowed a second time with marks of the most profound respect. Then stretching his hand out, in his turn, towards the poop, that is to say, towards his own cabin, he drew back to allow Aramis to go first. The three Bretons, who had come on board after their bishop, 
looked at each other, stupefied. The crew were awed to silence. Five minutes after, the commander called the second lieutenant, who returned immediately, ordering the head to be put towards Corona. Whilst this order was being executed, Aramis reappeared upon the deck and took a seat near the bastingage. Night had fallen. The moon had not yet risen, yet Aramis looked incessantly towards Belle-Isle. Eve then approached the captain, who had returned to take his post in the stern, and said, in a low and humble voice, "'What course are we to follow, captain?' "'We take what course Monseigneur pleases,' replied the officer. Aramis passed the night leaning upon the bastingage. Eve, on approaching him next morning, remarked that the night must have been a very damp one, for the wood on which the bishop's head had rested was soaked with dew. Who knows? That dew was, it may be, the first tears that had ever fallen from the eyes of Aramis. What epitaph would have been worth that, good Porthos? End of chapter Chapter 52 of The Man in the Iron Mask This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas Chapter 52 Monsieur de Gevres Round D'Artagnan was little used to resistance like that he had just experienced. He returned profoundly irritated to Nantes. Irritation with this vigorous man, usually vented itself in impetuous attack, which few people, hitherto, were they king, were they giants, had been able to resist. Trembling with rage, he went straight to the castle, and asked an audience with the king. It might be about seven o'clock in the morning, and, since his arrival at Nantes, the king had been an early riser. But on arriving at the corridor with which we are acquainted, D'Artagnan found Monsieur de Chèvre who stopped him politely, telling him not to speak too loud and disturb the king. "'Is the king asleep?' said D'Artagnan. "'Well, I will let him sleep. But about what o'clock do you suppose he will rise?' "'Oh, in about two hours. His Majesty has been up all night.' D'Artagnan took his hat again, bowed to Monsieur de Gèvres, and returned to his own apartments. He came back at half-past nine, and was told that the king was at breakfast. "'That will just suit me,' said D'Artagnan. "'I will talk to the king while he is eating.' Monsieur de Brienne reminded D'Artagnan that the king would not see anyone at mealtime. "'But,' said D'Artagnan, looking askant at Brienne, "'you do not know, perhaps, monsieur, that I have the privilege of entrer anywhere, and at any hour.' Brienne took the captain's hand kindly, and said, "'Not at Nantes, dear Monsieur d'Artagnan. The king, in this journey, has changed everything.' D'Artagnan, a little softened, asked about what o'clock the king would have finished his breakfast. "'We don't know.' "'Eh? Don't know? What does that mean? You don't know how much time the king devotes to eating? It is generally an hour.' and, if we admit that the air of the Loire gives an additional appetite, we will extend it to an hour and a half. That is enough, I think. 
I will wait where I am. Oh, dear Monsieur d'Artagnan, the order of the day is not to allow any person to remain in this corridor. I am on guard for that particular purpose. D'Artagnan felt his anger mounting to his brain a second time. He went out quickly, for fear of complicating the affair by a display of premature ill-humour. As soon as he was out, he began to reflect. "'The king,' said he, "'will not receive me, that is evident. The young man is angry. He is afraid, beforehand, of the words that I may speak to him. Yes, but in the meantime Belle-Isle is besieged, and my two friends by now probably taken or killed. Poor Porthos!' As to Master Aramis, he is always full of resources, and I am easy on his account. But no, no, Porthos is not yet an invalid, nor is Aramis in his dotage. The one with his arm, the other with his imagination, will find work for His Majesty's soldiers. Who knows if these brave men may not get up for the edification of His Most Christian Majesty a bastion of Saint-Gervais? I don't despair of it. They have cannon and a garrison. And yet, continued D'Artagnan, I don't know whether it would not be better to stop the combat. For myself alone I would not put up with either surly looks or insults from the king, but for my friends I must put up with everything. Shall I go to Monsieur Colbert? Now there is a man I must acquire the habit of terrifying. I will go to Monsieur Colbert and D'Artagnan set forth bravely to find M. Colbert, but was informed that he was working with the king at the castle of Nantes. "'Good!' cried he. "'The times have come again in which I measured my steps from de Treville to the cardinal, from the cardinal to the queen, from the queen to Louis the Thirteenth. Truly is it said that men, in growing old, become children again. To the castle, then!' He returned thither. Monsieur de Lyon was coming out. He gave D'Artagnan both hands, but told him that the king had been busy all the preceding evening and all night, and that orders had been given that no one should be admitted. "'Not even the captain who takes the order?' cried D'Artagnan. "'I think that is rather too strong.' "'Not even he,' said Monsieur de Lyon. "'Since that is the case,' replied D'Artagnan, wounded to the heart, since the captain of the musketeers, who has always entered the king's chamber, is no longer allowed to enter it, his cabinet, or his salle à manger, either the king is dead, or his captain is in disgrace. Do me a favour, then, Monsieur de Lyon, who are in favour, to return and tell the king plainly, I send him my resignation. D'Artagnan, beware of what you are doing! For friendship's sake, go. And he pushed him gently towards the cabinet. Well, I will go, said Lyon. D'Artagnan waited, walking about the corridor in no enviable mood. Lyon returned. Well, what did the king say? exclaimed D'Artagnan. He simply answered, Tis well, replied Lyon. That it was well, said the captain, with an explosion. That is to say, that he accepts it? Good! Now, then, I am free. I am only a plain citizen, Monsieur de Lyon. I have the pleasure of bidding you good-bye. Farewell, castle, corridor, antechamber. 
a bourgeois, about to breathe at liberty, takes his farewell of you. And without waiting longer, the captain sprang from the terrace down the staircase where he had picked up the fragments of Gourville's letter. Five minutes after, he was at the hostelry, where, according to the custom of all great officers who have lodgings at the castle, he had taken what was called his city-chamber. But when he arrived there, instead of throwing off his sword and cloak, he took his pistols, put his money into a large leather purse, sent for his horses from the castle stables, and gave orders that would ensure their reaching Vannes during the night. Everything went on according to his wishes. At eight o'clock in the evening he was putting his foot in the stirrup, when Monsieur de Gevre appeared, at the head of twelve guards, in front of the hostelry. D'Artagnan saw all from the corner of his eye. He could not fail seeing thirteen men and thirteen horses. But he feigned not to observe anything, and was about to put his horse in motion. Gevre rode up to him. "'Monsieur d'Artagnan,' said he aloud. "'Ah, Monsieur de Gevre, good evening.' "'One would say you were getting on horseback.' "'More than that, I am mounted, as you see.' "'It is fortunate I have met with you.' "'Were you looking for me, then?' <laughs> "'Mon Dieu, yes.' "'On the part of the king, I will wager.' "'Yes.' "'As I, three days ago, went in search of Monsieur Fouquet.' "'Oh, nonsense. It is no use being over-delicate with me. That is all labour lost.' Tell me at once you are come to arrest me. To arrest you? Good heavens, no! Why do you come to accost me with twelve horsemen at your heels, then? I am making my round. That isn't bad. And so you pick me up in your round, eh? I don't pick you up. I meet with you, and I beg you to come with me. Where? To the king. Good said d'artagnan with a bantering air the king is disengaged for heaven's sake captain said monsieur de gevre in a low voice to the musketeer do not compromise yourself these men hear you d'artagnan laughed aloud and replied march people who are arrested are placed between the six first guards and the six last but as i am not arresting you said monsieur de gevre you will march behind, with me, if you please. Well, said D'Artagnan, that is very polite, Duke, and you are right in being so. For if ever I had had to make my rounds near your chambre de vie, I should have been courteous to you, I assure you, on the word of a gentleman. Now, one favour more. What does the king want with me? Oh, the king is furious. Very well. The king, who has thought it worth while to be angry, may take the trouble to grow calm again. That is all. I shan't die of that, I will swear. No, but... But I shall be sent to keep company with unfortunate Monsieur Fouquet. Mordieu! That is a gallant man, a worthy man. We shall live very sociably together, I will be sworn. Here we are at the place of destination, said the duke. "'Captain, for heaven's sake, be calm with the king.' "'Ah! <laughs> you are playing the brave man with me, duke,' said D'Artagnan, throwing one of his defiant glances over Gevre. 
I have been told that you are ambitious of uniting your guards with my musketeers. This strikes me as a splendid opportunity. I will take exceeding good care not to avail myself of it, Captain. And why not, pray? Oh, for many reasons. In the first place, for this. If I were to succeed you in the musketeers after having arrested you, ah, then you admit you have arrested me. No, I don't. Say, met me, then. So, you were saying, if you were to succeed me after having arrested me. Your musketeers, at the first exercise with ball cartridges, would fire my way by mistake. Oh, as to that I won't say, for the fellows do love me a little. Gevre made D'Artagnan pass in first and took him straight to the cabinet where Louis was waiting for his captain of the musketeers, and placed himself behind his colleague in the antechamber. The king could be heard distinctly, speaking aloud to Colbert, in the same cabinet where Colbert might have heard, a few days before, the king speaking aloud with Monsieur d'Artagnan. The guards remained as a mounted picket before the principal gate, and the report was quickly spread throughout the city that, Monsieur le Capitaine of the Musketeers had been arrested by order of the King. Then these men were seen to be in motion, and as in the good old days of Louis the Thirteenth and Monsieur de Treville, groups were formed and staircases were filled. Vague murmurs issuing from the court below came rolling to the upper stories like the distant moaning of the waves. Monsieur de Gevre became uneasy. He looked at his guards, who, after being interrogated by the musketeers who had just got among their ranks, began to shun them with a manifestation of innocence. D'Artagnan was certainly less disturbed by all this than Monsieur de Gevre, the captain of the guards. As soon as he entered, he seated himself on the ledge of a window whence with his eagle glance he saw all that was going on without the least emotion. No step of the progressive fermentation which had shown itself at the report of his arrest, escaped him. He foresaw the very moment the explosion would take place, and we know that his previsions were in general correct. It would be very whimsical, thought he, if this evening my praetorian should make me king of France, how I should laugh. But at the height all was stopped. Guards, musketeers, officers, soldiers, murmurs, uneasiness— dispersed, vanished, died away. There was an end of menace and sedition. One word had calmed the waves. The king had desired Brienne to say, "'Hush, messieurs, you disturb the king!' D'Artagnan sighed. "'All is over,' said he. "'The musketeers of the present day are not those of his majesty Louis the Thirteenth. All is over.' "'Monsieur d'Artagnan, you are wanted in the antechamber of the king,' proclaimed an usher. End of chapter Chapter 53 of The Man in the Iron Mask This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. THE MAN IN THE IRON MASK by Alexandre Dumas Chapter 53 King Louis XIV 
The king was seated in his cabinet, with his back turned towards the door of entrance. In front of him was a mirror, in which, while turning over his papers, he could see at a glance those who came in. He did not take any notice of the entrance of D'Artagnan, but spread above his letters and plans the large silk cloth he used to conceal his secrets from the importunate. D'Artagnan understood this by-play, and kept in the background, so that at the end of a minute the king, who heard nothing, and saw nothing save from the corner of his eye, was obliged to cry, "'Is not Monsieur d'Artagnan there?' "'I am here, sire,' replied the musketeer, advancing. "'Well, monsieur,' said the king, fixing his pellucid eyes on d'Artagnan, "'what have you to say to me?' "'I, sire,' replied the latter, who watched the first blow of his adversary to make a good retort. "'I have nothing to say to your majesty, unless it be that you have caused me to be arrested, and here I am.' The king was going to reply that he had not had D'Artagnan arrested, but any such sentence appeared too much like an excuse, and he was silent. D'Artagnan likewise preserved an obstinate silence. "'Monsieur,' at length resumed the king. What did I charge you to go and do at Belle-Isle? Tell me, if you please. The king, while uttering these words, looked intently at his captain. Here D'Artagnan was fortunate. The king seemed to place the game in his hands. I believe, replied he, that your majesty does me the honor to ask what I went to Belle-Isle to accomplish? Yes, monsieur. Well, sire, I know nothing about it. It is not of me that question should be asked, but of that infinite number of officers of all kinds, to whom have been given innumerable orders of all kinds, whilst to me, head of the expedition, nothing precise was said or stated in any form whatever. The king was hurt. He showed it by his reply. Monsieur, said he, orders have only been given to such as were judged faithful, and therefore I have been astonished, sire, retorted the musketeer, that a captain like myself, who ranks with a marechal of France, should have found himself under the orders of five or six lieutenants or majors, good to make spies of, possibly, but not at all fit to conduct a warlike expedition. It was upon this subject I came to demand an explanation of your majesty, when I found the door closed against me which the final insult offered to a brave man has led me to quit your majesty's service monsieur replied the king you still believe that you are living in an age when kings were as you complain of having been under the orders and at the discretion of their inferiors you seem to forget that a king owes an account of his actions to none but god i forget nothing sire said the musketeer, wounded by this lesson. Besides, I do not see in what an honest man, when he asks of his king how he has ill-served him, offends him. You have ill-served me, monsieur, by siding with my enemies against me. Who are your enemies, sire? The men I sent you to fight. Two men, the enemies of the whole of your majesty's army. That is incredible." you have no power to judge of my will. But I have to judge of my own friendships, sire. He who serves his friends does not serve his master. 
I so well understand this, sire, that I have respectfully offered your majesty my resignation. And I have accepted it, monsieur, said the king. Before being separated from you, I was willing to prove to you that I know how to keep my word. Your majesty has kept more than your word, for your majesty has had me arrested, said D'Artagnan, with his cold, bantering air. You did not promise me that, sire. The king would not condescend to perceive the pleasantry, and continued seriously, "'You see, monsieur, to what grave steps your disobedience forces me.' "'My disobedience!' cried D'Artagnan, red with anger. "'It is the mildest term that I can find,' pursued the king. "'My idea was to take and punish rebels. Was I bound to inquire whether these rebels were your friends or not?' "'But I was.' replied d'artagnan it was a cruelty on your majesty's part to send me to capture my friends and lead them to your gibbets it was a trial i had to make monsieur of pretended servants who eat my bread and should defend my person the trial has succeeded ill monsieur d'artagnan for one bad servant your majesty loses said the musketeer with bitterness there are ten who, on that same day, go through a like ordeal. Listen to me, sire. I am not accustomed to that service. Mine is a rebel sword when I am required to do ill. It was ill to send me in pursuit of two men whose lives Monsieur Fouquet, your majesty's preserver, implored you to save. Still further, these men were my friends. They did not attack your majesty. They succumbed to your blind anger." Besides, why were they not allowed to escape? What crime had they committed? I admit you may contest with me the right of judging their conduct, but why suspect me before the action? Why surround me with spies? Why disgrace me before the army? Why me, in whom till now you have showed the most entire confidence, who for thirty years has been attached to your person, and have given you a thousand proofs of my devotion— for it must be said, now that I am accused, why reduce me to see three thousand of the king's soldiers march in battle against two men? One would say you have forgotten what these men have done to me, said the king in a hollow voice, and that it was no merit of theirs I was not lost. Sire, one would imagine you forget that I was there. Enough, Monsieur d'Artagnan, enough of these dominating interests which arise to keep the sun itself from my interests i am founding a state in which there shall be but one master as i promised you the moment is at hand for me to keep my promise you wish to be according to your tastes or private friendships free to destroy my plans and save my enemies i will thwart you or will drop you seek a more compliant master I know full well that another king would not conduct himself as I do, and would allow himself to be dominated by you, at the risk of sending you some day to keep company with Monsieur Fouquet and the rest. But I have an excellent memory, and for me, services are sacred titles to gratitude, to impunity. You shall only have this lesson, Monsieur d'Artagnan, as the punishment of your want of discipline, and I will not imitate my predecessors in anger— not having imitated them in favour. And then, other reasons make me act mildly toward you. 
in the first place, because you are a man of sense, a man of excellent sense, a man of heart, and that you will be a capital servant to him who shall have mastered you. Secondly, because you will cease to have any motives for insubordination. Your friends are now destroyed or ruined by me. These supports on which your capricious mind instinctively relied, I have caused to disappear. At this moment my soldiers have taken or killed the rebels of Belle-Isle. D'Artagnan became pale. "'Taken or killed!' cried he. "'Oh, sire, if you thought what you tell, if you were sure you were telling me the truth, I should forget all that is just, all that is magnanimous in your words, to call you a barbarous king and an unnatural man. But I pardon you these words,' said he, smiling with pride. "'I pardon them to a young prince who does not know—' who cannot comprehend what such men as Monsieur d'Herblay, Monsieur du Vallon, and myself are. Taken or killed. Ah! Ah, sire! Tell me, if the news is true, how much has it cost you in men and money? We will then reckon if the game has been worth the stakes. As he spoke thus, the king went up to him in great anger, and said, Monsieur d'Artagnan, your replies are those of a rebel. Tell me, if you please— who is king of France? Do you know any other? Sire, replied the captain of the musketeers coldly, I very well remember that one morning at Vaux you addressed that question to many people who did not answer to it, whilst I, on my part, did answer to it. If I recognized my king on that day, when the thing was not easy, I think it would be useless to ask the question of me now, when your majesty and I are alone. At these words Louis cast down his eyes. It appeared to him that the shade of the unfortunate Philippe passed between D'Artagnan and himself to evoke the remembrance of that terrible adventure. Almost at the same moment an officer entered and placed a dispatch in the hands of the king, who in his turn changed color while reading it. Monsieur, said he, what I learn here you would know later. It is better I should tell you, and that you should learn it from the mouth of your king. A battle has taken place at Belle-Isle. Is it possible? said D'Artagnan, with a calm air, though his heart was beating fast enough to choke him. Well, sire. Well, monsieur, and I have lost a hundred and ten men. A beam of joy and pride shone in the eyes of D'Artagnan. And the rebels— said he. "'The rebels have fled,' said the king. D'Artagnan could not restrain a cry of triumph. "'Only,' added the king, "'I have a fleet which closely blockades Belle-Isle, and I am certain not a bark can escape.' "'So that,' said the musketeer, brought back to his dismal idea, "'if these two gentlemen are taken, they will be hanged,' said the king quietly." "'And do they know it?' replied D'Artagnan, repressing his trembling. "'They know it, because you must have told them yourself, and all the country knows it.' "'Then, sire, they will never be taken alive. I will answer for that.' "'Ah!' said the king, negligently, and taking up his letter again. "'Very well, they will be dead then, Monsieur D'Artagnan, and that will come to the same thing.' since I should only take them to have them hanged. 
D'Artagnan wiped the sweat which flowed from his brow. "'I have told you,' pursued Louis the Fourteenth, "'that I would one day be an affectionate, generous, and constant master. "'You are now the only man of former times worthy of my anger or my friendship. "'I will not spare you either sentiment, according to your conduct. "'Could you serve a king, Monsieur d'Artagnan, "'who should have a hundred kings, his equals, in the kingdom?' Could I, tell me, do with such weak instruments the great things I meditate? Did you ever see an artist effect great works with an unworthy tool? Far from us, monsieur, the old leaven of feudal abuse, the fronde, which threatened to ruin monarchy, has emancipated it. I am master at home, Captain d'Artagnan, and I shall have servants who, lacking perhaps your genius, will carry devotion and obedience to the verge of heroism. Of what consequence, I ask you, of what consequence is it that God has given no sense to arms and legs? It is to the head he has given genius, and the head you know, the rest obey. I am the head. D'Artagnan started. Louis the Fourteenth continued as if he had seen nothing, although this emotion had not by any means escaped him. Now let us conclude between us two the bargain I promised to make with you one day, when you found me in a very strange predicament at Blois. Do me justice, monsieur, when you admit I do not make any one pay for the tears of shame that I then shed. Look around you. Lofty heads have bowed. Bow yours, or choose such exile as will suit you. Perhaps, when reflecting upon it, you will find your king has a generous heart, who reckons sufficiently upon your loyalty to allow you to leave him dissatisfied when you possess a great state secret. You are a brave man. I know you to be so. Why have you judged me prematurely? Judge me from this day forward, D'Artagnan, and be as severe as you please. D'Artagnan remained bewildered, mute undecided for the first time in his life. At last he had found an adversary worthy of him. This was no longer trick, it was calculation. No longer violence, but strength. No longer passion, but will. No longer boasting, but counsel. This young man who had brought down a Fouquet, and could do without a D'Artagnan, deranged the somewhat headstrong calculations of the musketeer. "'Come, let us see what stops you,' said the king, kindly. "'You have given in your resignation. Shall I refuse to accept it? I admit that it may be hard for such an old captain to recover lost good humour.' "'Oh,' replied D'Artagnan, in a melancholy tone, "'that is not my most serious care. I hesitate to take back my resignation, because I am old in comparison with you,' and have habits difficult to abandon. Henceforward you must have courtiers who know how to amuse you, madmen who will get themselves killed to carry out what you call your great works. Great they will be, I feel. But if by chance I should not think them so? I have seen war, sire. I have seen peace. I have served Richelieu and Mazarin. I have been scorched with your father at the fire of Rochelle, riddled with sword-thrusts like a sieve, having grown a new skin ten times, as serpents do. 
after affronts and injustices, I have a command which was formerly something, because it gave the bearer the right of speaking as he liked to his king. But your captain of the musketeers will henceforward be an officer guarding the outer doors. Truly, sire, if that is to be my employment from this time, seize the opportunity of our being on good terms to take it from me. Do not imagine that I bear malice. No, you have tamed me, as you say, but it must be confessed that in taming me you have lowered me. By bowing me you have convicted me of weakness. If you knew how well it suits me to carry my head high, and what a pitiful mien I should have while scenting the dust of your carpets. O oh, sire, I regret sincerely, and you will regret as I do, the old days when the King of France saw in every vestibule those insolent gentlemen, lean, always swearing, cross-grained mastiffs, who could bite mortally in the hour of danger or of battle. These men were the best of courtiers to the hand which fed them. They would lick it. But for the hand that struck them, oh, the bite that followed! A little gold on the lace of their cloaks, a slender stomach in their haute de chausse, a little sparkling of grey in their dry hair, and you will behold the handsome dukes and peers, the haughty marechaux of France. But why should I tell you all this? The king is master. He wills that I should make verses. He wills that I should polish the mosaics of his antechambers with satin shoes. Mortio! That is difficult. But I have got over greater difficulties. I will do it. Why should I do it? Because I love money? I have enough. Because I am ambitious? My career is almost at an end. Because I love the court? No. I will remain here because I have been accustomed for thirty years to go and take the orderly word of the king, and to have said to me, Good evening, D'Artagnan, with a smile I did not beg for. That smile I will beg for. Are you content, sire? And D'Artagnan bowed his silver head, upon which the smiling king placed his white hand with pride. Thanks, my old servant, my faithful friend said he, as, reckoning from this day, I have no longer any enemies in France. It remains with me to send you to a foreign field to gather your marshal's baton. Depend upon me for finding you an opportunity. In the meanwhile, eat of my very best bread, and sleep in absolute tranquillity. That is all kind and well, said D'Artagnan, much agitated. But those poor men at Belle-Isle, one of them in particular, so good, so brave, so true. Do you ask their pardon of me? Upon my knees, sire. Well, then go and take it to them, if it be still in time. But do you answer for them? With my life, sire. Go, then. Tomorrow I set out for Paris. Return by that time, for I do not wish you to leave me in the future. Be assured of that, sire, said D'Artagnan, kissing the royal hand. And with a heart swelling with joy, he rushed out of the castle on his way to Belle-Isle. End of chapter
Chapter Fifty Four of The Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexander Dumas. Chapter Fifty Four. Monsieur Fouquet's Friends. The king had returned to Paris, and with him D'Artagnan, who, in twenty-four hours, having made with greatest care all possible inquiries at Belle-Isle, succeeded in learning nothing of the secret so well kept by the heavy rock of Lochmaria, which had fallen on the heroic Porthos. The captain of the musketeers only knew what those two valiant men, these two friends, whose defence he had so nobly taken up, whose lives he had so earnestly endeavoured to save, aided by three faithful Bretons, had accomplished against a whole army. He had seen, spread on the neighbouring heath, the human remains which had stained with clouded blood the scattered stones among the flowering broom. He learned also that a bark had been seen far out at sea, and that, like a bird of prey, a royal vessel had pursued, overtaken, and devoured the poor little bird that was flying with such palpitating wings. But there D'Artagnan's certainties ended. The field of supposition was thrown open. Now what could he conjecture? The vessel had not returned. It is true that a brisk wind had prevailed for three days, but the corvette was known to be a good sailor, and solid in its timbers. It had no need to fear a gale of wind, and it ought, according to the calculation of D'Artagnan, to have either returned to Brest, or come back to the mouth of the Loire. Such was the news, ambiguous, it is true, but in some degree reassuring to him personally, which D'Artagnan brought to Louis the Fourteenth, when the king, followed by all the court, returned to Paris. Louis, satisfied with his success, Louis, more mild and affable as he felt himself more powerful, had not ceased for an instant to ride beside the carriage-door of Mademoiselle de la Valliere. Everybody was anxious to amuse the two queens, so as to make them forget this abandonment by son and husband. Everything breathed the future. The past was nothing to anybody. Only that past was like a painful bleeding wound to the hearts of certain tender and devoted spirits. Scarcely was the king reinstalled in Paris, when he received a touching proof of this. Louis the Fourteenth had just risen and taken his first repast, when his captain of the musketeers presented himself before him. D'Artagnan was pale and looked unhappy. The king, at the first glance, perceived the change in a countenance generally so unconcerned. "'What is the matter, D'Artagnan?' said he. "'Sire, a great misfortune has happened to me.' "'Good heavens! What is that?' "'Sire, I have lost one of my friends, Monsieur du Vallon, in the affair of Belle-Isle.' And while speaking these words, D'Artagnan fixed his falcon eye upon Louis the Fourteenth to catch the first feeling that would show itself. "'I knew it,' replied the king quietly. "'You knew it, and did not tell me?' cried the musketeer. "'To what good? Your grief, my friend, was so well worthy of respect. It was my duty to treat it gently. To have informed you of this misfortune, which I knew would pain you greatly, D'Artagnan, 
would have been in your eyes to have triumphed over you. Yes, I knew that Monsieur du Vallon had buried himself beneath the rocks of Lac Maria. I knew that Monsieur d'Herblay had taken one of my vessels with its crew, and had compelled it to convey him to Bayonne. But I was willing you should learn these matters in a direct manner, in order that you might be convinced my friends are with me, respected and sacred, that always in me the man will sacrifice himself to subjects, whilst the king is so often found to sacrifice men to majesty and power. But, sire, how could you know? How do you yourself know, D'Artagnan? By this letter, sire, which Monsieur d'Herblay, free and out of danger, writes me from Bayonne. Look here, said the king, drawing from a casket placed upon the table close to the seat upon which D'Artagnan was leaning. Here is a letter copied exactly from that of Monsieur d'Herblay. Here is the very letter which Colbert placed in my hands a week before you received yours. I am well served, you may perceive. Yes, sire, murmured the musketeer. You were the only man whose star was equal to the task of dominating the fortune and strength of my two friends. You have used your power, sire. You will not abuse it, will you? D'Artagnan, said the king, with a smile beaming with kindness, I could have Monsieur d'Herblay carried off from the territories of the King of Spain, and brought here alive, to inflict justice upon him. But, D'Artagnan, be assured I will not yield to this first and natural impulse. He is free. Let him continue free. Oh, sire, you will not always remain so clement, so noble, so generous, as you have shown yourself with respect to me and Monsieur d'Herblay. You will have about you counsellors who will cure you of that weakness. No, D'Artagnan, you are mistaken when you accuse my counsel of urging me to pursue rigorous measures. The advice to spare Monsieur d'Herblay comes from Colbert himself. Oh, sire, said D'Artagnan, extremely surprised. As for you, continued the king, with a kindness very uncommon to him, I have several pieces of good news to announce to you, but you shall know them, my dear captain, the moment I have made my accounts all straight. I have said that I wish to make, and would make, your fortune. That promise will soon become reality. A thousand times thanks, sire. I can wait. But I implore you, whilst I go and practice patience, that your majesty will deign to notice those poor people who have for so long a time besieged your antechamber, and come humbly to lay a petition at your feet. Who are they? Enemies of your majesty. The king raised his head. Friends of Monsieur Fouquet, added D'Artagnan. Their names? Monsieur Gouville, Monsieur Pelisson, and a poet, Monsieur Jean de La Fontaine. The king took a moment to reflect. "'What do they want?' "'I do not know.' "'How do they appear?' "'In great affliction.' "'What do they say?' "'Nothing.' "'What do they do?' "'They weep.' "'Let them come in,' said the king, with a serious brow. D'Artagnan turned rapidly on his heel— 
raised the tapestry which closed the entrance to the royal chamber, and directing his voice to the adjoining room, cried, "'Enter!' The three men D'Artagnan had named immediately appeared at the door of the cabinet in which were the king and his captain. A profound silence prevailed in their passage. The courtiers, at the approach of the friends of the unfortunate superintendent of finances, drew back, as if fearful of being affected by contagion with disgrace and misfortune. D'Artagnan, with a quick step, came forward to take by the hand the unhappy men who stood trembling at the door of the cabinet. He led them in front of the king's fauteuil, who, having placed himself in the embrasure of a window, awaited the moment of presentation, and was preparing himself to give the supplicants a rigorously diplomatic reception. The first of the friends of Fouquet's to advance was Pelisson. He did not weep, but his tears were only restrained that the king might better hear his voice and prayer. Gourville bit his lips to check his tears, out of respect for the king. La Fontaine buried his face in his handkerchief, and the only signs of life he gave were the convulsive motions of his shoulders raised by his sobs. The king preserved his dignity. His countenance was impassable. He even maintained the frown which appeared when D'Artagnan announced his enemies. He made a gesture which signified, Speak, and he remained standing, with his eyes fixed searchingly on these desponding men. Pelisson bowed to the ground, and La Fontaine knelt as people do in churches. This dismal silence, disturbed only by sighs and groans, began to excite in the king not compassion, but impatience. Monsieur Pelisson, said he in a sharp, dry tone, Monsieur Couville, and you, monsieur, and he did not name La Fontaine, I cannot, without sensible displeasure, see you come to plead for one of the greatest criminals it is the duty of justice to punish. A king does not allow himself to soften, save at the tears of the innocent, the remorse of the guilty. I have no faith either in the remorse of Monsieur Fouquet or the tears of his friends, because the one is tainted to the very heart, and the others ought to dread offending me in my own palace. For these reasons I beg you, Monsieur Pelisson, Monsieur Gourville, and you, Monsieur, to say nothing that will not plainly proclaim the respect you have for my will. Sire, replied Pelisson, trembling at these words, we are come to say nothing to your majesty that is not the most profound expression of the most sincere respect and love that are due to a king from all his subjects your majesty's justice is redoubtable every one must yield to the sentences it pronounces we respectfully bow before it far from us the idea of coming to defend him who has had the misfortune to offend your majesty he who has incurred your displeasure may be a friend of ours, but he is an enemy to the state. We abandon him, but with tears, to the severity of the king. Besides, interrupted the king, calmed by that supplicating voice and those persuasive words, my parliament will decide. I do not strike without first having weighed the crime. My justice does not wield the sword without employing first a pair of scales. Therefore we have every confidence in that impartiality of the king, 
and hope to make our feeble voices heard, with the consent of your majesty, when the hour for defending an accused friend strikes. "'In that case, messieurs, what do you ask of me?' said the king, with his most imposing air. "'Sire,' continued Pelisson, "'the accused has a wife and family. The little property he had was scarcely sufficient to pay his debts.' and Madame Fouquet, since her husband's captivity, is abandoned by everybody. The hand of your majesty strikes like the hand of God. When the Lord sends the curse of leprosy or pestilence into a family, everyone flies and shuns the abode of the leprous or plague-stricken. Sometimes, but very rarely, a generous physician alone ventures to approach the ill-reputed threshold, passes it with courage, and risks his life to combat death. He is the last resource of the dying, the chosen instrument of heavenly mercy. Sire, we supplicate you, with clasped hands and bended knees, as a divinity is supplicated. Madame Fouquet has no longer any friends, no longer any means of support. She weeps in her deserted home, abandoned by all those who besieged its doors in the hour of prosperity. She has neither credit nor hope left. At least, the unhappy wretch upon whom your anger falls receives from you, however culpable he may be, his daily bread, though moistened by his tears. As much afflicted, more destitute than her husband, Madame Fouquet, the lady who had the honour to receive your majesty at her table, Madame Fouquet, the wife of the ancient superintendent of your majesty's finances, Madame Fouquet has no longer bread. Here the mortal silence, which had chained the breath of Pelisson's two friends, was broken by an outburst of sobs, and D'Artagnan, whose chest heaved at hearing this humble prayer, turned round towards the angle of the cabinet to bite his moustache and conceal a groan. The king had preserved his eye dry and his countenance severe, but the blood had mounted to his cheeks, and the firmness of his look was visibly diminished. "'What do you wish?' said he, in an agitated voice. "'We come humbly to ask your majesty,' replied Pelisson, upon whom emotion was fast gaining." to permit us, without incurring the displeasure of your majesty, to lend to Madame Fouquet two thousand pistoles collected among the old friends of her husband, in order that the widow may not stand in need of the necessaries of life. At the word widow, pronounced by Pelisson whilst Fouquet was still alive, the king turned very pale. His pride disappeared. Pity rose from his heart to his lips, he cast a softened look upon the men who knelt sobbing at his feet. "'God forbid,' said he, "'that I should confound the innocent with the guilty. They know me but ill who doubt my mercy towards the weak. I strike none but the arrogant. Do, messieurs, do all that your hearts counsel you to assuage the grief of Madame Fouquet. Go, messieurs, go.' The three now rose in silence with dry eyes. The tears had been scorched away by contact with their burning cheeks and eyelids. They had not the strength to address their thanks to the king, 
who himself cut short their solemn reverences by entrenching himself suddenly behind the fauteuil. D'Artagnan remained alone with the king. Well, said he, approaching the young prince, who interrogated him with his look, well, my master, if you had not the device which belongs to your son, I would recommend you one which Monsieur Conrart might translate into eclectic Latin, calm with the lowly, stormy with the strong. The king smiled, and passed into the next apartment, after having said to D'Artagnan, I give you the leave of absence you must want to put the affairs of your friend, the late Monsieur du Vallon, in order. End of chapter. Chapter 55 of The Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter 55 Porthos's Will. At Pierrefonds everything was in mourning. The courts were deserted, the stables closed, the parterres neglected. In the basins, the fountains, formerly so jubilantly fresh and noisy, had stopped of themselves. Along the roads around the chateau came a few grave personages mounted on mules or country nags. These were rural neighbors, cures and bailiffs of adjacent estates. All these people entered the chateau silently, handed their horses to a melancholy-looking groom, and directed their steps, conducted by a huntsman in black, to the great dining-room, where Mousqueton received them at the door. Mousqueton had become so thin in two days that his clothes moved upon him like an ill-fitting scabbard in which the sword-blade dances at each motion. His face, composed of red and white, like that of the Madonna of Van Dyck, was furrowed by two silver rivulets which had dug their beds in his cheeks, as full formerly as they had become flabby since his grief began. At each fresh arrival Mousqueton found fresh tears, and it was pitiful to see him press his throat with his fat hand to keep from bursting into sobs and lamentations. All these visits were for the purpose of hearing the reading of Porthos's will, announced for that day, and at which all the covetous friends of the dead man were anxious to be present, as he had left no relations behind him. The visitors took their places as they arrived, and the great room had just been closed when the clock struck twelve, the hour fixed for the reading of the important document. Porthos's procurer, and that was naturally the successor of Master Coquinard, commenced by slowly unfolding the vast parchment upon which the powerful hand of Porthos had traced his sovereign will. The seal broken, the spectacles put on, the preliminary cough having sounded, everyone pricked up his ears. Mousqueton had squatted himself in a corner, the better to weep and the better to hear. All at once the folding doors of the great room, which had been shut, were thrown open as if by magic and a warlike figure appeared upon the threshold, resplendent in the full light of the sun. This was D'Artagnan, who had come alone to the gate, and finding nobody to hold his stirrup, had tied his horse to the knocker and announced himself. 
the splendour of daylight invading the room, the murmur of all present, and, more than all, the instinct of the faithful dog, drew Mousqueton from his reverie. He raised his head, recognised the old friend of his master, and, screaming with grief, he embraced his knees, watering the floor with his tears. D'Artagnan raised the poor intendant, embraced him as if he had been a brother, and, having nobly saluted the assembly, who all bowed as they whispered to each other his name, he went and took his seat at the extremity of the great carved oak hall, still holding by the hand poor Mousqueton, who was suffocating with excess of woe, and sank upon the steps. Then the procureur, who, like the rest, was considerably agitated, commenced. Porthos, after a profession of faith of the most Christian character, asked pardon of his enemies for all the injuries he might have done them. At this paragraph a ray of inexpressible pride beamed from the eyes of D'Artagnan. He recalled to his mind the old soldier, all those enemies of Porthos brought to earth by his valiant hand. He reckoned up the numbers of them, and said to himself that Porthos had acted wisely, not to enumerate his enemies, or the injuries done to them, or the task would have been too much for the reader. Then came the following schedule of his extensive lands. I possess at this present time, by the grace of God, 1. The domain of Pierrefonds, lands, woods, meadows, waters, and forests, surrounded by good walls. 2. The domain of Brasseur, chateaux, forests, ploughed lands, forming three farms. 3. The little estate du Vallon, so named because it is in the valley. Brave Porthos. 4. Fifty farms in Touraine, amounting to five hundred acres. 5. Three mills upon the Cher, bringing in six hundred livres each. 6. Three fish pools in Berry, producing two hundred livres a year. As to my personal or movable property, so called because it can be moved, as is so well explained by my learned friend, the Bishop of Vannes, D'Artagnan shuddered at the dismal remembrance attached to that name, the procureur continued imperturbably, they consist, one, in goods which I cannot detail here for want of room, and which furnish all my chateaux or houses, but of which the list is drawn up by my intendant. Everyone turned his eyes towards Mousqueton, who was still lost in grief. 2. In twenty horses for saddle and draught, which I have particularly at my chateau of Pierrefonds, and which are called Bayard, Roland, Charlemagne, Pepin, Dunois, Lahire, Augier, Samson, Milo, Nimrod, Uganda, Armida, Flastrade, Dalila, Rebecca, Yolanda, Finette, Grisette, Lisette, and Musette. 3. In sixty dogs, forming six packs, divided as follows. The first, for the stag. The second, for the wolf. The third, for the wild boar. The fourth, for the hare. And the two others, for setters and protection. 4. 
in arms for war and the chase contained in my gallery of arms. 5. My wines of Anjou, selected for Athos, who liked them formerly. My wines of Burgundy, Champagne, Bordeaux, and Spain, stocking eight cellars and twelve vaults in my various houses. 6. My pictures and statues, which are said to be of great value, and which are sufficiently numerous to fatigue the sight. 7. My library, consisting of six thousand volumes, quite new, and have never been opened. 8. My silver plate, which is perhaps a little worn, but which ought to weigh from a thousand to twelve hundred pounds, for I had great trouble in lifting the coffer that contained it, and could not carry it more than six times round my chamber. 9. All these objects, in addition to the table and house-linen, are divided in the residence I liked the best. Here the reader stopped to take breath. Everyone sighed, coughed, and redoubled his attention. The procurer resumed. I have lived without having any children, and it is probable I never shall have any, which to me is a cutting grief. And yet I am mistaken, for I have a son, in common with my other friends, that is, Monsieur Raoul Auguste Jules de Bragelonne, the true son of Monsieur le Comte de la Fere. This young nobleman appears to me extremely worthy to succeed the valiant gentleman of whom I am the friend and very humble servant. Here a sharp sound interrupted the reader. It was D'Artagnan's sword, which, slipping from his baldric, had fallen on the sonorous flooring. Everyone turned his eyes that way, and saw that a large tear had rolled from the thick lid of D'Artagnan, halfway down to his aquiline nose, the luminous edge of which shone like a little crescent moon. "'This is why,' continued the procureur, "'I have left all my property, movable or immovable, comprised in the above enumerations, to Monsieur le Vicomte Raoul Auguste Jules de Bragelonne, son of Monsieur le Comte de la Fere, to console him for the grief he seems to suffer, and enable him to add more lustre to his already glorious name. A vague murmur ran through the auditory. The procureur continued, seconded by the flashing eye of D'Artagnan, which, glancing over the assembly, quickly restored the interrupted silence. On condition that Monsieur le Vicomte de Bragelonne do give to Monsieur le Chevalier d'Artagnan, captain of the king's musketeers, whatever the said Chevalier d'Artagnan may demand of my property, on condition that Monsieur le Vicomte de Bragelonne do pay a good pension to Monsieur le Chevalier d'Herblay, my friend, if he should need it in exile. I leave to my intendant Mousqueton all my clothes, of city, war, or chase, to the number of forty-seven suits, in the assurance that he will wear them till they are worn out, for the love of and in remembrance of his master. Moreover, I bequeath to Monsieur le Vicomte de Bragelonne, my old servant and faithful friend Mousqueton, already named, provided that the said Vicomte shall so act that Mousqueton shall declare, when dying, he has never ceased to be happy. On hearing these words, Mousqueton bowed, pale and trembling. His shoulders shook convulsively, 
His countenance, compressed by a frightful grief, appeared from between his icy hands, and the spectators saw him stagger and hesitate, as if, though wishing to leave the hall, he did not know the way. "'Mousqueton, my good friend,' said D'Artagnan, "'go and make your preparations. I will take you with me to Athos's house, whither I shall go on leaving Pierrefonds.' Mousqueton made no reply. He scarcely breathed, as if everything in that hall would from that time be foreign. He opened the door and slowly disappeared. The procureur finished his reading, after which the greater part of those who had come to hear the last will of Porthos dispersed by degrees, many disappointed, but all penetrated with respect. As for D'Artagnan, thus left alone, after having received the formal compliments of the procureur, he was lost in admiration of the wisdom of the testator, who had so judiciously bestowed his wealth upon the most necessitous and the most worthy, with a delicacy that neither nobleman nor courtier could have displayed more kindly. When Porthos enjoined Raoul de Bragelonne to give D'Artagnan all that he would ask, he knew well, our worthy Porthos, that D'Artagnan would ask or take nothing, and in case he did demand anything, none but himself could say what. Porthos left a pension to Aramis, who, if he should be inclined to ask too much, was checked by the example of D'Artagnan, and that word exile, thrown out by the testator, without apparent intention, was it not the mildest, most exquisite criticism upon that conduct of Aramis which had brought about the death of Porthos? But there was no mention of Athos in the Testament of the Dead. Could the latter for a moment suppose that the son would not offer the best part to the father? The rough mind of Porthos had fathomed all these causes, seized all these shades more clearly than law, better than custom, with more propriety than taste. "'Porthos had indeed a heart,' said D'Artagnan to himself with a sigh. As he made this reflection, he fancied he heard a groan in the room above him, and he thought immediately of poor Mousqueton, who he felt it was a pleasing duty to divert from his grief. For this purpose he left the hall hastily to seek the worthy intended, as he had not returned. He ascended the staircase leading to the first story, and perceived, in Porthos's own chamber, a heap of clothes of all colours and materials, upon which Mousqueton had laid himself down, after heaping them all on the floor together. It was the legacy of the faithful friend. Those clothes were truly his own. They had been given to him. The hand of Mousqueton was stretched over these relics, which he was kissing with his lips, with all his face, and covered with his body. D'Artagnan approached to console the poor fellow. "'My God,' said he, "'he does not stir. He has fainted.' But D'Artagnan was mistaken. Mousqueton was dead. Dead, like the dog who, having lost his master, crawls back to die upon his cloak. End of chapter Chapter fifty six of The Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina.
The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas Chapter 56 The Old Age of Athos While these affairs were separating forever the four musketeers, formerly bound together in a manner that seemed indissoluble, Athos, left alone after the departure of Raoul, began to pay his tribute to that foretaste of death which is called the absence of those we love. Back in his house at Blois, no longer having even Grimaud to receive a poor smile as he passed through the parterre, Athos daily felt the decline of vigor of a nature which for so long a time had seemed impregnable. Age, which had been kept back by the presence of the beloved object, arrived with that cortege of pains and inconveniences which grows by geometrical accretion. Athos had no longer his son to induce him to walk firmly, with head erect, as a good example. He had no longer, in those brilliant eyes of the young man, an ever-ardent focus at which to kindle anew the fire of his looks. And then must it be said, that nature, exquisite in tenderness and reserve, no longer finding anything to understand its feelings, gave itself up to grief with all the warmth of common natures which they yield to joy. The Comte de la Fere, who had remained a young man to his sixty-second year, the warrior who had preserved his strength in spite of fatigue, his freshness of mind in spite of misfortune, his mild serenity of soul and body in spite of Milady, in spite of Mazarin, in spite of La Valliere. Athos had become an old man in a week, from the moment at which he lost the comfort of his later youth. Still handsome, though bent, noble but sad, he sought, since his solitude, the deeper glades where sunshines scarcely penetrated. He discontinued all the mighty exercises he had enjoyed through life when Raoul was no longer with him. The servants, accustomed to seeing him stirring with the dawn at all seasons, was astonished to hear seven o'clock strike before their master quitted his bed. Athos remained in bed with a book under his pillow, but he did not sleep, neither did he read. Remaining in bed that he might no longer have to carry his body, he allowed his soul and spirit to wander from their envelope, and return to his son, or to God. His people were sometimes terrified to see him, for hours together, absorbed in that silent reverie, mute and insensible. He no longer heard the timid step of the servant who came to the door of his chamber, to watch the sleeping or waking of his master. It often occurred that he forgot the day had half passed away, that the hours for the two first meals were gone by. Then he was awakened. He rose, descended to his shady walk, then came out a little into the sun, as though to partake of its warmth for a minute in memory of his absent child. And then the dismal, monotonous walk recommenced, until, exhausted, he regained the chamber and his bed, his domicile by choice. For several days the Comte did not speak a single word. He refused to receive the visits that were paid him, and during the night he was seen to relight his lamp and pass long hours in writing, or examining parchments. Athos wrote one of these letters to Vannes, another to Fontainebleau. They remained without answers. We know why. Aramis had quitted France, and D'Artagnan was travelling from Nantes to Paris, from Paris to Pierrefonds. 
His valet de chambre observed that he shortened his walk every day by several turns. The great alley of limes soon became too long for feet that used to traverse it formerly a hundred times a day. The comte walked feebly as far as the middle trees, seated himself upon a mossy bank that sloped towards a sidewalk, and there waited the return of his strength, or rather the return of night. Very shortly a hundred steps exhausted him. At length Athos refused to rise at all. He declined all nourishment, and his terrified people, though he did not complain, although he wore a smile upon his lips, although he continued to speak with his sweet voice, his people went to Blois in search of the ancient physician of the late monsieur, and brought him to the Comte de la Fere in such a fashion that he could see the Comte without himself being seen. For this purpose they placed him in a closet adjoining the chamber of the patient, and implored him not to show himself, for fear of displeasing their master, who had not asked for a physician. The doctor obeyed. Athos was a sort of model for the gentlemen of the country. The Blasois boasted of possessing this sacred relic of French glory. Athos was a great seigneur compared with such nobles as the king improvised by touching with his artificial sceptre the parched-up trunks of the heraldic trees of the province. People respected Athos, we say, and they loved him. The physician could not bear to see his people weep, to see flock round him the poor of the canton, to whom Athos had so often given life and consolation by his kind words and his charities. He examined, therefore, from the depths of his hiding-place, the nature of that mysterious malady which bent and aged more mortally every day, a man but lately so full of life and a desire to live. He remarked upon the cheeks of Athos the hectic hue of fever, which feeds upon itself, slow fever, pitiless, born in a fold of the heart, sheltering itself behind that rampart, growing from the suffering it engenders, at once cause and effect of a perilous situation. The Comte spoke to nobody. He did not even talk to himself. His thought feared noise. It approached to that degree of over-excitement which borders upon ecstasy. Man thus absorbed, though he does not yet belong to God, already appertains no longer to the earth. The doctor remained for several hours, studying this painful struggle of the will against superior power. He was terrified at seeing those eyes always fixed, ever directed on some invisible object, was terrified at the monotonous beating of that heart which never a sigh arose to vary the melancholy state, for often pain becomes the hope of the physician. Half a day passed away thus. The doctor formed his resolution like a brave man. He issued suddenly from his place of retreat, and went straight up to Athos, who beheld him without evincing more surprise than if he had understood nothing of the apparition. "'Monsieur le Comte, I crave your pardon,' said the doctor, coming up to the patient with open arms. "'But I have a reproach to make you. You shall hear me.' And he seated himself by the pillow of Athos, who had great trouble in rousing himself from his preoccupation. "'What is the matter, doctor?' asked the Comte, after a silence. "'The matter is, you are ill, monsieur, and have had no advice.' "'I, 
ill,' said Athos, smiling. "'Fever, consumption, weakness, decay, Monsieur le Comte.' "'Weakness,' replied Athos. "'Is it possible? I do not get up.' "'Come, come, Monsieur le Comte, no subterfuges. You are a good Christian?' "'I hope so,' said Athos. "'Is it your will to kill yourself?' Never, doctor. Well, monsieur, you are in a fair way of doing so. Thus to remain is suicide. Get well, monsieur le comte, get well. Of what? Find the disease first. For my part, I never knew myself better. Never did the sky appear more blue to me. Never did I take more care of my flowers. You have a hidden grief. Concealed. Not at all. The absence of my son, doctor, that is my malady, and I do not conceal it. Monsieur le Comte, your son lives. He is strong. He has all the future before him. The future of men of merit, of his race. Live for him. But I do live, doctor. Oh, be satisfied of that, added he with a melancholy smile. For as long as Raoul lives, it will be plainly known. For as long as he lives, I shall live. What do you say? A very simple thing. At this moment, doctor, I leave life suspended within me. A forgetful, dissipated, Indifferent life would be beyond my strength, now I no longer have Raoul with me. You do not ask the lamp to burn when the matches not illumine the flame. Do not ask me to live amidst noise and merriment. I vegetate. I prepare myself. I wait. Look, doctor, remember those soldiers we have so often seen together at the ports, where they were waiting to embark, lying down, indifferent, half on one element, half on the other. They were neither at the place where the sea was going to carry them, nor at the place the earth was going to lose them. Baggage prepared, minds on the stretch, arms stacked. They waited. I repeat it. The word is the one which paints my present life lying down like the soldiers, my ear on the stretch for the report that may reach me, I wish to be ready to set out at the first summons. Who will make me that summons, life or death? God or Raoul? My baggage is packed, my soul is prepared. I await the signal. I wait, doctor, I wait. The doctor knew the temper of that mind. He appreciated the strength of that body. He reflected for the moment, told himself that words were useless, remedies absurd, and left the chateau, exhorting Athos's servants not to quit him for a moment. The doctor being gone, Athos evinced neither anger nor vexation at having been disturbed. He did not even desire that all letters that came should be brought to him directly. He knew very well that every distraction which should arise would be a joy, a hope, which his servants would have paid with their blood to procure him. 
sleep had become rare. By intense thinking, Athos forgot himself, for a few hours at most, in a reverie most profound, more obscure than other people would have called a dream. The momentary repose which this forgetfulness thus gave the body still further fatigued the soul, for Athos lived a double life during these wanderings of his understanding. One night he dreamt that Raoul was dressing himself in a tent to go upon an expedition commanded by Monsieur de Beaufort in person. The young man was sad. He clasped his cuirass slowly, and slowly he girded on his sword. "'What is the matter?' asked his father, tenderly. "'What afflicts me is the death of Porthos, ever so dear a friend,' replied Raoul. "'I suffer here the grief you soon will feel at home.' And the vision disappeared with the slumber of Athos. At daybreak one of his servants entered his master's apartment, and gave him a letter which came from Spain. "'The writing of Aramis,' thought the Comte, and he read. "'Porthos is dead!' cried he, after the first lines. "'Oh! Raoul! Raoul! Thanks! Thou keepest thy promise! Thou warnest me!' And Athos, seized with a mortal sweat, fainted in his bed without any other cause than weakness. End of chapter Chapter fifty seven of The Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter fifty seven Athos's Vision. When this fading of Athos had ceased, the Comte almost ashamed of having given way before this superior natural event, dressed himself and ordered his horse, determined to ride to Blois, to open more certain correspondences with either Africa, D'Artagnan, or Aramis. In fact, this letter from Aramis informed the Comte de la Fere of the bad success of the expedition of Belle-Isle. It gave him sufficient details of the death of Porthos, to move the tender and devoted heart of Athos to its innermost fibres. Athos wished to go and pay his friend Porthos a last visit. To render this honour to his companion-in-arms, he meant to send to D'Artagnan to prevail upon him to recommence the painful voyage to Belle-Isle, to accomplish, in his company, that sad pilgrimage to the tomb of the giant he had so much loved then to return to his dwelling to obey that secret influence which was conducting him to eternity by a mysterious road. But scarcely had his joyous servants dressed their master, whom they saw with pleasure preparing for a journey which might dissipate his melancholy, scarcely had the Comte's gentlest horse been saddled and brought to the door, when the father of Raoul felt his head become confused, his legs give way, and he clearly perceived the impossibility of going one step further. He ordered himself to be carried into the sun. They laid him upon his bed of moss, where he passed a full hour before he could recover his spirits. Nothing could be more natural than this weakness, after the inert repose of the latter days. 
Athos took a bouillon to give him strength, and bathed his dried lips in a glassful of the wine he loved the best, that old Anjou wine mentioned by Porthos in his admirable will. Then, refreshed, free in mind, he had his horse brought again, but only with the aid of his servants was he able painfully to climb into the saddle. He did not go a hundred paces. A shivering seized him again at the turning of the road. "'This is very strange,' said he to his valet de chambre, who accompanied him. "'Let us stop, monsieur, I conjure you,' replied the faithful servant. "'How pale you are getting!' "'That will not prevent my pursuing my route, now that I have once started,' replied the comte, and he gave his horse his head again. But suddenly the animal, instead of obeying the thought of his master, stopped. A movement, of which Athos was unconscious, had checked the bit. "'Something,' said Athos, "'wills that I should go no further. "'Support me,' added he, stretching out his arms, Quick, come closer. I feel my muscles relax. I shall fall from my horse. The valet had seen the movement made by his master at the moment he received the order. He went up to him quickly, received the comte in his arms, and as they were not yet sufficiently distant from the house for the servants, who had remained at the door to watch their master's departure, not to perceive the disorder and the usually regular proceeding of the comte, the valet called his comrades by gestures and voice, and all hastened to his assistance. Athos had gone but a few steps on his return, when he felt himself better again. His strength seemed to revive, and with it the desire to go to Blois. He made his horse turn round, but at the animal's first steps he sunk again into a state of torpor and anguish. "'Well, decidedly,' said he, it is willed that I should stay at home. His people flocked around him. They lifted him from his horse, and carried him as quickly as possible into the house. Everything was prepared in his chamber, and they put him to bed. "'You will be sure to remember,' said he, disposing himself to sleep, "'that I expect letters from Africa this very day.' "'Monsieur will no doubt hear with pleasure that Blasois's son is gone on horseback, to gain an hour over the courier of Blois,' replied his valet de chambre. "'Thank you,' replied Athos, with his placid smile. The comte fell asleep, but his disturbed slumber resembled torture rather than repose. The servant who watched him saw several times the expression of internal suffering shadowed on his features. Perhaps Athos was dreaming." The day passed away. Blasois's son returned. The courier had brought no news. The comte reckoned the minutes with despair. He shuddered when those minutes made an hour. The idea that he was forgotten seized him once, and brought on a fearful pang of the heart. Everybody in the house had given up all hopes of the courier. His hour had long passed. Four times the express sent to Blois had repeated his journey, and there was nothing to the address of the comte. Athos knew that the courier only arrived once a week. Here, then, was a delay of eight mortal days to be endured. He commenced the night in this painful persuasion. All that a sick man, irritated by suffering, 
can add of melancholy suppositions to probabilities already gloomy, Athos heaped up during the early hours of this dismal night. The fever rose. It invaded the chest, where the fire soon caught, according to the expression of the physician, who had been brought back from Blois by Blaisois in his last journey. Soon it gained the head. The physician made two successive bleedings, which dislodged it for the time, but left the patient very weak, and without power of action in anything but his brain. And yet this redoubtable fever had ceased. It besieged with its last palpitations the tense extremities. It ended by yielding as midnight struck. The physician, seeing the incontestable improvement, returned to Blois, after having ordered some prescriptions, and declared that the comte was saved. Then commenced for Athos a strange, indefinable state. Free to think, his mind turned towards Raoul, that beloved son. His imagination penetrated the fields of Africa in the environs of Gigeli, where Monsieur de Beaufort must have landed with his army. A waste of grey rocks, rendered green in certain parts by the waters of the sea, when it lashed the shore in storms and tempest. Beyond, the shore, strewed over with these rocks like gravestones, ascended, in form of an amphitheatre among mastic trees and cactus, a sort of small town, full of smoke, confused noises, and terrified movements. All of a sudden, from the bosom of this smoke arose a flame, which succeeded, creeping along the houses, in covering the entire surface of the town, and increased by degrees, uniting in its red and angry vortices, tears, screams, and supplicating arms outstretched to heaven. There was for a moment a frightful pell-mell of timbers falling to pieces, of swords broken, of stones calcined, trees burnt and disappearing. It was a strange thing that in this chaos, in which Athos distinguished raised arms, in which he heard cries, sobs, and groans, he did not see one human figure. The cannon thundered at a distance, musketry madly barked, the sea moaned, flocks made their escape, bounding over the verdant slope, but not a soldier to apply the match to the batteries of cannon, not a sailor to assist in manoeuvring the fleet, not a shepherd in charge of the flocks. After the ruin of the village, the destruction of the forts which dominated it, a ruin and destruction magically wrought without the cooperation of a single human being, the flames were extinguished, the smoke began to subside, then diminished in intensity, paled, and disappeared entirely. Night then came over the scene, night dark upon the earth, brilliant in the firmament, the large blazing stars which spangled the African sky glittered and gleamed without illuminating anything. A long silence ensued, which gave, for a moment, repose to the troubled imagination of Athos, and as he felt that that which he saw was not terminated, he applied more attentively the eyes of his understanding on the strange spectacle which his imagination had presented. This spectacle was soon continued for him, a mild, pale moon rose behind the declivities of the coast, streaking at first the undulating ripples of the sea, which appeared to have calmed after the roaring 
it had set forth during the vision of Athos. The moon, we say, shed its diamonds and opals upon the briars and bushes of the hills. The grey rocks, so many silent and attentive phantoms, appeared to raise their heads to examine likewise the field of battle by the light of the moon, and Athos perceived that the field, empty during the combat, was now strewn with fallen bodies. An inexpressible shudder of fear and horror seized his soul as he recognized the white and blue uniforms of the soldiers of Picardy, with their long pikes and blue handles, and muskets marked with the fleur-de-lis on the butts. When he saw all the gaping wounds, looking up to the bright heavens as if to demand back of them the souls to which they had opened a passage, when he saw the slaughtered horses, stiff, their tongues hanging out at one side of their mouths, sleeping in the shiny blood congealed around them, staining their furniture and their manes, when he saw the white horse of Monsieur de Beaufort, with his head beaten to pieces, in the first ranks of the dead, Athos passed a cold hand over his brow, which he was astonished not to find burning. He was convinced by this touch that he was present, as a spectator, without delirium's dreadful aid, the day after the battle fought upon the shores of Gigelli, by the army of the expedition, which he had seen leave the coast of France, and disappear upon the dim horizon, and of which he had saluted with thought and gesture the last cannon-shot, fired by the duke as a signal of farewell to his country. Who can paint the mortal agony with which his soul followed, like a vigilant eye, these effigies of clay-cold soldiers, and examine them, one after the other, to see if Raoul slept among them? Who can express the intoxication of joy with which Athos bowed before God, and thanked him for not having seen him he sought with so much fear among the dead? In fact, fallen in their ranks, stiff, icy, the dead, still recognizable with ease, seemed to turn with complacency towards the Comte de la Fere, to be the better seen by him during his sad review. But yet he was astonished, while viewing all these bodies, not to perceive the survivors. To such a point did the illusion extend, that his vision was for him a real voyage made by the father into Africa, to obtain more exact information respecting his son. Fatigued, therefore, with having traversed seas and continents, he sought repose under one of the tents sheltered behind a rock, on the top of which floated the white fleur-de-lis pennon. He looked for a soldier to conduct him to the tent of Monsieur de Beaufort. Then, while his eye was wandering over the plain, turning on all sides, he saw a white form appear behind the scented myrtles. This figure was clothed in the costume of an officer. It held in its hand a broken sword. It advanced slowly towards Athos, who, stopping short and fixing his eyes upon it, neither spoke nor moved, but wished to open his arms, because in this silent officer he had already recognized Raoul. The comte attempted to utter a cry, but it was stifled in his throat. Raoul, with a gesture, directed him to be silent, placing his finger on his lips, and drawing back by degrees, without Athos being able to see his legs move. 
the comte, still paler than Raoul, followed his son, painfully traversing briars and bushes, stones and ditches, Raoul not appearing to touch the earth, no obstacle seeming to impede the lightness of his march. The comte, who the inequalities of the path fatigued, soon stopped, exhausted. Raoul still continued to beckon him to follow him. The tender father, to whom love restored strength, made a last effort and climbed the mountain after the young man, who attracted him by gesture and by smile. At length he gained the crest of the hill, and saw, thrown out in black, upon the horizon whitened by the moon, the aerial form of Raoul. Athos reached forth his hand to get closer to his beloved son upon the plateau, and the latter also stretched out his. But suddenly, as if the young man had been drawn away in his own despite, still retreating, he left the earth, and Athos saw the clear blue sky shine between the feet of his child and the ground of the hill. Raoul rose insensibly into the void, smiling, still calling with gesture. He departed towards heaven. Athos uttered a cry of tenderness and terror. He looked below again. He saw a camp destroyed, and all those white bodies of the royal army, like so many motionless atoms, and then, raising his head, he saw the figure of his son, still beckoning him to climb the mystic void. End of chapter Chapter 58 of The Man in the Iron Mask This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. THE MAN IN THE IRON MASK by Alexander Dumas CHAPTER 58 THE ANGEL OF DEATH Athos was at this part of his marvellous vision, when the charm was suddenly broken by a great noise rising from the outer gates. A horse was heard galloping over the hard gravel of the great alley, and the sound of noisy and animated conversations ascended to the chamber in which the Comte was dreaming. Athos did not stir from the place he occupied. He scarcely turned his head towards the door to ascertain the sooner what these noises could be. A heavy step ascended the stairs. The horse, which had recently galloped, departed slowly towards the stables. Great hesitation appeared in the steps, which by degrees approached the chamber. A door was opened and Athos, turning a little towards the part of the room the noise came from, cried in a weak voice, "'It is a courier from Africa, is it not?' "'No, Monsieur le Comte,' replied a voice which made the father of Raoul start upright in his bed. "'Grimaud!' murmured he, and the sweat began to pour down his face. Grimaud appeared in the doorway. It was no longer the Grimaud we have seen, still young with courage and devotion, when he jumped the first into the boat destined to convey Raoul de Bragelonne to the vessels of the royal fleet. T'was now a stern and pale old man, his clothes covered with dust and his hair whitened by old age. He trembled whilst leaning against the door-frame, and was near falling on seeing, by the light of the lamps, the countenance of his master. 
these two men who had lived so long together in a community of intelligence, and whose eyes, accustomed to economize expressions, knew how to say so many things silently. These two old friends, one as noble as the other in heart, if they were unequal in fortune and birth, remained tongue-tied whilst looking at each other. By the exchange of a single glance they had just read to the bottom of each other's hearts. The old servitor bore upon his countenance the impression of a grief already old, the outward token of a grim familiarity with woe. He appeared to have no longer in use more than a single version of his thoughts. As formerly he was accustomed not to speak much, he was now accustomed not to smile at all. Athos read at a glance all these shades upon the visage of his faithful servant, and in the same tone he would have employed to speak to Raoul in his dream. Grimaud, said he, Raoul is dead. Is it not so? Behind Grimaud, the other servants listened breathlessly, with their eyes fixed upon the bed of their sick master. They heard the terrible question, and a heart-breaking silence followed. Yes, replied the old man, heaving the monosyllable from his chest with a hoarse, broken sigh. Then arose voices of lamentation, which groaned without measure, and filled with regrets and prayers the chamber where the agonized father sought with his eyes the portrait of his son. This was for Athos like the transition which led to his dream. Without uttering a cry, without shedding a tear, patient, mild, resigned as a martyr, he raised his eyes toward heaven, in order there to see again, rising above the mountain of Gigelli, the beloved shade that was leaving him at the moment of Grimaud's arrival. Without doubt, while looking towards the heavens, resuming his marvellous dream, he repassed by the same road by which the vision, at once so terrible and sweet, had led him before. For after having gently closed his eyes, he reopened them and began to smile. He had just seen Raoul, who had smiled upon him. With his hands joined upon his breast, his face turned toward the window, bathed by the fresh air of night, which brought upon its wings the aroma of the flowers and the woods, Athos entered, never again to come out of it, into the contemplation of that paradise which the living never see. God willed, no doubt, to open to this elect the treasures of eternal beatitude, at this hour when other men tremble with the idea of being severely received by the Lord, and cling to this life they know, in the dread of the other life of which they get but merest glimpses by the dismal murky torch of death. Athos was spirit-guided by the pure, serene soul of his son, which aspired to be like the paternal soul. Everything for this just man was melody and perfume in the rough road souls take to return to the celestial country. After an hour of this ecstasy, Athos softly raised his hands as white as wax. The smile did not quit his lips, and he murmured low, so low as scarcely to be audible, these three words addressed to God or to Raoul. 
Here I am. And his hands fell slowly, as though he himself had laid them on the bed. Death had been kind and mild to this noble creature. It had spared him the tortures of the agony, convulsions of the last departure, had opened with an indulgent finger the gates of eternity to that noble soul. God had no doubt ordered it thus, that the pious remembrance of this death should remain in the hearts of those present, and in the memory of other men. A death which caused to be loved the passage from this life to the other, by those whose existence upon this earth leads them not to dread the last judgment. Athos preserved, even in the eternal sleep, that placid and sincere smile, an ornament which was to accompany him to the tomb. The quietude and calm of his fine features made his servants for a long time doubt whether he had really quitted life. The comte's people wished to remove Grimaud, who from a distance devoured the face now quickly growing marble pale, and did not approach from pious fear of bringing to him the breath of death. But Grimaud, fatigued as he was, refused to leave the room. He sat himself down upon the threshold, watching his master with the vigilance of a sentinel, jealous to receive either his first waking look or his last dying sigh. The noises all were quiet in the house. Every one respected the slumber of their lord. But Grimaud, by anxiously listening, perceived that the Comte no longer breathed. He raised himself with his hands leaning on the ground, looked to see if there did not appear some motion in the body of his master. Nothing. Fear seized him. He rose completely up, and at the very moment heard someone coming up the stairs. A noise of spurs knocking against a sword— a warlike sound familiar to his ears, stopped him as he was going towards the bed of Athos. A voice more sonorous than brass or steel resounded within three paces of him. "'Athos! Athos! My friend!' cried this voice, agitated even to tears. "'Monsieur le Chevalier d'Artagnan,' faltered out Grimaud. "'Where is he? Where is he?' continued the musketeer. Grimaud seized his arm in his bony fingers, and pointed to the bed, upon the sheets of which the livid tints of death already showed. A choked respiration, the opposite to a sharp cry, swelled the throat of D'Artagnan. He advanced on tiptoe, trembling, frightened at the noise his feet made on the floor, his heart rent by a nameless agony. He placed his ear to the breast of Athos, his face to the comte's mouth. Neither noise nor breath. D'Artagnan drew back. Grimaud, who had followed him with his eyes, and for whom each of his movements had been a revelation, came timidly, seated himself at the foot of the bed, and glued his lips to the sheet which was raised by the stiffened feet of his master. Then large drops began to flow from his red eyes. This old man, in invincible despair, who wept, bent doubled without uttering a word, presented the most touching spectacle that D'Artagnan, 
in a life so filled with emotion, had ever met with. The captain resumed standing in contemplation before that smiling dead man, who seemed to have burnished his last thought to give his best friend, the man he had loved next to Raoul, a gracious welcome even beyond life. And for reply to that exalted flattery of hospitality, D'Artagnan went and kissed Athos fervently on the brow, and with his trembling fingers closed his eyes. Then he seated himself by the pillow, without dread of that dead man, who had been so kind and affectionate to him for five and thirty years. He was feeding his soul with the remembrances the noble visage of the Comte brought to his mind in crowds, some blooming and charming as that smile, some dark, dismal, and icy as that visage with its eyes now closed to all eternity. All at once, the bitter flood which mounted from minute to minute invaded his heart, and swelled his breast almost to bursting. Incapable of mastering his emotion, he arose, and tearing himself violently from the chamber where he had just found dead, him to whom he had come to report the news of the death of Porthos, he uttered sobs so heart-rending that the servants, who seemed only to wait for an explosion of grief, answered to it by their lugubrious clamours, and the dogs of the late Comte by their lamentable howlings. Grimaud was the only one who did not lift up his voice. Even in the paroxysm of his grief he would not have dared to profane the dead, or for the first time disturb the slumber of his master. Had not Athos bidden him be dumb? At daybreak, D'Artagnan, who had wandered about the lower hall, biting his fingers to stifle his sighs, D'Artagnan went up once more, and watching the moments when Grimaud turned his head towards him, he made him a sign to come to him, which the faithful servant obeyed without making more noise than a shadow. D'Artagnan went down again, followed by Grimaud, and when he had gained the vestibule, taking the old man's hands, Grimaud, said he, I have seen how the father died. Now let me know about the son. Grimaud drew from his breast a large letter, upon the envelope of which was traced the address of Athos. He recognized the writing of Monsieur de Beaufort, broke the seal, and began to read, while walking about in the first steel-chill rays of dawn, in the dark alley of old limes, marked by the still-visible footsteps of the Comte, who had just died. End of chapter Chapter 59 of The Man in the Iron Mask This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas Chapter 59 The Bulletin The Duc de Beaufort wrote to Athos. The letter destined for the living only reached the dead. God had changed the address. "'My dear Comte,' wrote the prince in his large schoolboy's hand, "'a great misfortune has struck us amidst a great triumph. The king loses one of the bravest of soldiers.' 
I lose a friend. You lose Monsieur de Bragelonne. He has died gloriously, so gloriously that I have not the strength to weep as I could wish. Receive my sad compliments, my dear Comte. Heaven distributes trials according to the greatness of our hearts. This is an immense one, but not above your courage. Your good friend, Le Duc de Beaufort. The letter contained a relation written by one of the prince's secretaries. It was the most touching recital, and the most true, of that dismal episode which unravelled two existences. D'Artagnan, accustomed to battle emotions, and with a heart armed against tenderness, could not help starting on reading the name of Raoul, the name of that beloved boy who had become a shade now, like his father. In the morning said the prince's secretary, Monseigneur commanded the attack. Normandy and Picardy had taken positions in the rocks dominated by the heights of the mountain, upon the declivity of which were raised the bastions of Gigelli. The cannon opened the action. The regiments marched full of resolution, the pikemen with pikes elevated, the musket-bearers with their weapons ready. The prince followed attentively the march and movements of the troops, so as to be able to sustain them with a strong reserve. With Monseigneur were the oldest captains and his aides-de-camp. Monsieur de Vicomte de Bragelonne had received orders not to leave his highness. In the meantime, the enemy's cannon, which at first thundered with little success against the masses, began to regulate their fire, and the balls, better directed, killed several men near the prince. The regiments formed in column, and, advancing against the ramparts, were rather roughly handled. There was a sort of hesitation in our troops, who found themselves ill-seconded by the artillery. In fact, the batteries which had been established the evening before had but a weak and uncertain aim, on account of their position. The upward direction of the aim lessened the justness of the shots, as well as their range. Monseigneur, comprehending the bad effect of this position on the siege artillery, commanded the frigates moored in the little road to commence a regular fire against the place. Monsieur de Bragelonne offered himself at once to carry this order. But Monseigneur refused to acquiesce in the vicomte's request. Monseigneur was right for he loved and wished to spare the young nobleman. He was quite right, and the event took upon itself to justify his foresight and refusal, for scarcely had the sergeant, charged with the message, solicited by Monsieur de Bragelonne, gained the seashore, when two shots from long carbines issued from the enemy's ranks and laid him low. The sergeant fell, dyeing the sand with his blood, Observing which, Monsieur de Bragelonne smiled at Monseigneur, who said to him, "'You see, Vicomte, I have saved your life. Report that, some day, to Monsieur le Comte de la Fere, in order that, learning it from you, he may thank me.' The young nobleman smiled sadly, and replied to the Duke, "'It is true, Monseigneur, that but for your kindness I should have been killed, where the poor sergeant has fallen,' and should be at rest. Monsieur de Bragelonne made this reply in such a tone that Monseigneur answered him warmly, Vrai de! Young man, one would say that your mouth waters for death. 
but, for the soul of Henry the Fourth, I have promised your father to bring you back alive, and, please the Lord, I mean to keep my word. Monsieur de Bragelonne coloured, and replied, in a lower voice, Monseigneur, pardon me, I beseech you. I have always had a desire to meet good opportunities, and it is so delightful to distinguish ourselves before our general, particularly when that general is Monsieur le Duc de Beaufort. Monseigneur was a little softened by this, and, turning to the officers who surrounded him, gave different orders. The grenadiers of the two regiments got near enough to the ditches and entrenchments to launch their grenades, which had but small effect. In the meanwhile, Monsieur d'Estray, who commanded the fleet, having seen the attempt of the sergeant to approach the vessels, understood that he must act without orders, and opened fire. Then the Arabs, finding themselves seriously injured by the balls from the fleet, and beholding the destruction and ruin of their walls, uttered the most fearful cries. Their horsemen descended the mountain at a gallop, bent over their saddles, and rushed full tilt upon the columns of infantry, which, crossing their pikes, stopped this mad assault. Repulsed by the firm attitude of the battalion, the Arabs threw themselves with fury towards the etape major, which was not on its guard at that moment. The danger was great. Monseigneur drew his sword, his secretaries and people imitated him, the officers of the suite engaged in combat with the furious Arabs. It was then Monsieur de Bragelonne was able to satisfy the inclination he had so clearly shown from the commencement of the action. He fought near the prince with the valour of a Roman, and killed three Arabs with his small sword. But it was evident that his bravery did not arise from that sentiment of pride so natural to all who fight. It was impetuous, affected, even forced. He sought to glut, intoxicate himself with strife and carnage. He excited himself to such a degree that Monseigneur called to him to stop. He must have heard the voice of Monseigneur, because we who were close to him heard it. He did not, however, stop, but continued his course to the entrenchments. As Monsieur de Bragelonne was a well-disciplined officer, this disobedience to the orders of Monseigneur very much surprised everybody, and Monsieur de Beaufort redoubled his earnestness, crying, "'Stop, Bragelonne! Where are you going? Stop!' repeated Monseigneur. I command you. We all, imitating the gesture of Monsieur le Duc, we all raised our hands. We expected that the cavalier would turn bridle, but Monsieur de Bragelonne continued to ride towards the palisades. Stop, Bragelonne! repeated the prince in a very loud voice. Stop, in the name of your father! At these words, Monsieur de Bragelonne turned round, his countenance expressed a lively grief, but he did not stop. We then concluded that his horse must have run away with him. When M. le Duc saw cause to conclude that the Vicomte was no longer master of his horse, and had watched him precede the first grenadiers, his highness cried, "'Musketeers, kill his horse! A hundred pistoles for the man who kills his horse!' But who could expect to hit the beast without at least wounding his rider? No one dared the attempt. At length one presented himself. He was a sharpshooter of the regiment of Picardy, named Luzerne, who took aim at the animal, fired, 
and hit him in the quarters, for we saw the blood redden the hair of the horse. Instead of falling, the cursed Jennet was irritated, and carried him on more furiously than ever. Every Picard who saw this unfortunate young man, rushing on to meet certain death, shouted in the loudest manner, "'Throw yourself off, Monsieur le Vicomte! Off! Off! Throw yourself off!' Monsieur de Bragelonne was an officer much beloved in the army. Already had the Vicomte arrived within pistol-shot of the ramparts, when a discharge was poured upon him that enshrouded him in fire and smoke. We lost sight of him. The smoke dispersed. He was on foot, upright. His horse was killed. The Vicomte was summoned to surrender by the Arabs, but he made them a negative sign with his head, and continued to march towards the palisades. This was a mortal imprudence. Nevertheless, the entire army was pleased that he would not retreat, since ill-chance had led him so near. He marched a few paces further, and the two regiments clapped their hands. It was at this moment the second discharge shook the walls, and the Vicomte de Bragelonne again disappeared in the smoke. But this time the smoke dispersed in vain. We no longer saw him standing. He was down, with his head lower than his legs, among the bushes, and the Arabs began to think of leaving their entrenchments to come out and cut off his head, or take his body, as is the custom with the infidels. But Monseigneur le Duc de Beaufort had followed all this with his eyes, and the sad spectacle drew from him many painful sighs. He then cried aloud, seeing the Arabs running like white phantoms among the mastic trees, "'Grenadiers! Lancers! Will you let them take that noble body?' Saying these words, and waving his sword, he himself rode towards the enemy. The regiments, rushing in his steps, ran in their turn, uttering cries as terrible as those of the Arabs were wild. The combat commenced over the body of Monsieur de Bragelonne, and with such inveteracy was it fought that a hundred and sixty Arabs were left upon the field, by the side of at least fifty of our troops." It was a lieutenant from Normandy who took the body of the vicomte on his shoulders and carried it back to the lines. The advantage was, however, pursued, the regiments took the reserve with them, and the enemy's palisades were utterly destroyed. At three o'clock the fire of the Arabs ceased. The hand-to-hand -hand fight lasted two hours. It was a massacre. At five o'clock we were victorious at all points. The enemy had abandoned his positions, and Monsieur le Duc ordered the white flag to be planted on the summit of the little mountain. It was then we had time to think of Monsieur de Bragelonne, who had eight large wounds in his body, through which almost all his blood had welled away. Still, however, he had breathed, which afforded inexpressible joy to Monseigneur, who insisted on being present at the first dressing of the wounds and the consultation of the surgeons. There were two among them who declared Monsieur de Bragelonne would live. Monseigneur threw his arms around their necks, and promised them a thousand louis each if they could save him. The vicomte heard these transports of joy, and whether he was in despair, or whether he suffered much from his wounds, he expressed by his countenance a contradiction, which gave rise to reflection, particularly in one of the secretaries when he had heard what follows. The third surgeon was the brother of Sylvain de Saint-Cosme, 
the most learned of them all. He probed the wounds in his turn, and said nothing. Monsieur de Bragelonne fixed his eyes steadily upon the skilful surgeon, and seemed to interrogate his every movement. The latter, upon being questioned by Monseigneur, replied that he saw, plainly, three mortal wounds out of eight, but so strong was the constitution of the wounded, so rich was he in youth, and so merciful was the goodness of God, that perhaps Monsieur de Bragelonne might recover, particularly if he did not move in the slightest manner. Frère Sylvain added, turning towards his assistant, Above everything, do not allow him to move, even a finger, or you will kill him. And we all left the tent in very low spirits. That secretary I have mentioned, on leaving the tent, thought he perceived a faint and sad smile glide over the lips of Monsieur de Bragelonne, when the duke said to him, in a cheerful, kind voice, "'We will save you, Vicomte, we will save you yet!' In the evening, when it was believed the wounded youth had taken some repose, one of the assistants entered his tent, but rushed out again immediately, uttering loud cries. We all ran up in disorder, Monsieur le Duc with us, and the assistant pointed to the body of Monsieur de Bragelonne upon the ground, at the foot of his bed, bathed in the remainder of his blood. It appeared that he had suffered some convulsion, some delirium, and that he had fallen, that the fall had accelerated his end, according to the prognosis of Frère Sylvain. We raised the vicomte. He was cold and dead. He held a lock of fair hair in his right hand, and that hand was tightly pressed upon his heart. Then followed the details of the expedition, and of the victory obtained over the Arabs. D'Artagnan stopped at the account of the death of poor Raoul. "'Oh!' murmured he. "'Unhappy boy! A suicide!' And turning his eyes towards the chamber of the chateau, in which Athos slept in eternal sleep, "'They kept their words with each other,' said he in a low voice. Now I believe them to be happy. They must be reunited. And he returned through the parterre with slow and melancholy steps. All the village, all the neighborhood, were filled with grieving neighbors relating to each other the double catastrophe and making preparations for the funeral. End of chapter Chapter Sixty of the Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask, by Alexander Dumas, Chapter Sixty, the last canto of the poem. On the morrow, all the noblesse of the provinces of the environs and wherever messengers had carried the news, might have been seen arriving in detachments. D'Artagnan had shut himself up, without being able to speak to anybody. Two such heavy deaths, falling upon the captain, so closely after the death of Porthos, for a long time oppressed that spirit which had hitherto been so indefatigable and invulnerable. Except Grimaud, who entered his chamber once, the musketeers saw neither servants nor guests, he supposed, from the noises in the house, 
and the continual coming and going, that preparations were being made for the funeral of the Comte. He wrote to the king to ask for an extension of his leave of absence. Grimaud, as we have said, had entered D'Artagnan's apartment, had seated himself upon a joint stool near the door, like a man who meditates profoundly. Then, rising, he made a sign to D'Artagnan to follow him. The latter obeyed in silence. Grimaud descended to the Comte's bedchamber, showed the captain with his finger the place of the empty bed, and raised his eyes eloquently towards heaven. "'Yes,' replied D'Artagnan. "'Yes, good Grimaud, now with the son he loves so much.' Grimaud left the chamber and led the way to the hall, where, according to the custom of the province, the body was laid out, previously to being put away for ever. D'Artagnan was struck at seeing two open coffins in the hall. In reply to the mute invitation of Grimaud, he approached and saw in one of them Athos, still handsome in death, and in the other Raoul with his eyes closed, his cheeks pearly as those of the Pauls of Virgil, with a smile on his violet lips. He shuddered at seeing the father and son, those two departed souls, represented on earth by two silent, melancholy bodies, incapable of touching each other, however close they might be. "'Raoul here,' murmured he. "'Oh, Grimaud, why did you not tell me this?' Grimaud shook his head and made no reply, but taking D'Artagnan by the hand he led him to the coffin, and showed him, under the thin winding-sheet, the black wounds by which life had escaped. The captain turned away his eyes, and judging it was useless to question Grimaud, who would not answer, he recollected that M. de Beaufort's secretary had written more than he, D'Artagnan, had had the courage to read. Taking up the recital of the affair which had cost Raoul his life, he found these words, which ended the concluding paragraph of the letter. Monseigneur le Duc has ordered that the body of M. le Vicomte should be embalmed, after the manner practised by the Arabs when they wish their dead to be carried to their native land, and M. le Duc has appointed relays, so that the same confidential servant who brought up the young man might take back his remains to M. le Comte de la Fere. And so, thought D'Artagnan, I shall follow thy funeral, my dear boy, I, already old, I who am of no value on earth, and I shall scatter dust upon that brow I kissed but two months since. God has willed it to be so. Thou hast willed it to be so thyself. I have no longer the right even to weep. Thou hast chosen death. It seemed to thee a preferable gift to life. At length arrived the moment when the chill remains of these two gentlemen were to be given back to Mother Earth. There was such an affluence of military and other people that up to the place of the sepulchre, which was a little chapel on the plain, the road from the city was filled with horsemen and pedestrians in mourning. Athos had chosen for his resting-place the little enclosure of a chapel erected by himself near the boundary of his estates. He had had the stones, cut in 1550, brought from an old Gothic manor-house in Berry, which had sheltered his early youth. The chapel, thus rebuilt, transported, was pleasing to the eye beneath its leafy curtains of poplars and sycamores. It was ministered in every Sunday by the curé of the neighbouring bourg, 
to whom Athos paid an allowance of two hundred francs for this service, and all the vassals of his domain, with their families, came thither to hear mass, without having any occasion to go to the city. Behind the chapel extended, surrounded by two high hedges of hazel, elder, and whitethorn, and a deep ditch, the little enclosure, uncultivated, though gay in its sterility, because the mosses there grew thick, while heliotrope and ravenels there mingled perfumes, while from beneath an ancient chestnut issued a crystal spring, a prisoner in its marble cistern, and on the thyme all around alighted thousands of bees from the neighbouring plants, whilst chaffinches and redthroats sang cheerfully among the flower-spangled hedges. It was to this place the sombre coffins were carried, attended by a silent and respectful crowd. The office of the dead being celebrated, the last adieus paid to the noble departed, the assembly dispersed, talking, along the roads, of the virtues and mild death of the father, of the hopes the son had given, and of his melancholy end upon the arid coast of Africa. Little by little all noises were extinguished, like the lamps illuminating the humble nave. The minister bowed for the last time to the altar and the still fresh graves, then, followed by his assistant, he slowly took the road back to the presbytery. D'Artagnan, left alone, perceived that night was coming on. He had forgotten the hour, thinking only of the dead. He arose from the oaken bench on which he was seated in the chapel, and wished, as the priest had done, to go and bid a last adieu to the double grave which contained his two lost friends. A woman was praying, kneeling on the moist earth. D'Artagnan stopped at the door of the chapel to avoid disturbing her, and also to endeavour to find out who was the pious friend who performed this sacred duty with so much zeal and perseverance. The unknown had hidden her face in her hands, which were white as alabaster. From the noble simplicity of her costume, she must be a woman of distinction. Outside the enclosure were several horses mounted by servants. A travelling carriage was in waiting for this lady. D'Artagnan in vain sought to make out what caused her delay. She continued praying, and frequently pressed her handkerchief to her face, by which D'Artagnan perceived she was weeping. He beheld her strike her breast with the compunction of a Christian woman. He heard her several times exclaim as from a wounded heart, "'Pardon! Pardon!' And as she appeared to abandon herself entirely to her grief, as she threw herself down, almost fainting, exhausted by complaints and prayers, D'Artagnan, touched by this love for his so much regretted friends, made a few steps towards the grave, in order to interrupt the melancholy colloquy of the penitent with the dead. But as soon as his step sounded on the gravel, the unknown raised her head, revealing to D'Artagnan a face aflood with tears, a well-known face. It was Mademoiselle de la Valliere. "'Monsieur D'Artagnan,' murmured she. "'You,' replied the captain, in a stern voice, "'you here. Oh, madame, I should better have liked to see you decked with flowers in the mansion of the Comte de la Fere.' You would have wept less, and they too, and I. Monsieur, said she, sobbing. For it was you, added this pitiless friend of the dead, it was you who sped these two men to the grave. 
Oh, spare me! God forbid, madam, that I should offend a woman, or that I should make her weep in vain, but I must say that the place of the murderer is not upon the grave of her victims. She wished to reply. What I now tell you, added he, coldly, I have already told the king. She clasped her hands. I know, said she, I have caused the death of the Vicomte de Bragelonne. Ah, you know it. The news arrived at court yesterday. I have travelled during the night forty leagues to come and ask pardon of the Comte, whom I suppose to be still living, and to pray God, on the tomb of Raoul, that he would send me all the misfortunes I have merited, except a single one. Now, monsieur, I know that the death of the son has killed the father. I have two crimes to reproach myself with. I have two punishments to expect from heaven. I will repeat to you, mademoiselle, said D'Artagnan, what Monsieur de Bragelonne said of you at Antibes, when he had already meditated death. If pride and coquetry have misled her, I pardon her while despising her. If love has produced her error, I pardon her, but I swear that no one could have loved her as I have done. You know, interrupted Louise, that of my love I was about to sacrifice myself. You know whether I suffered when you met me lost, dying, abandoned. Well, never have I suffered so much as now, because then I hoped, desired. Now I have no longer anything to wish for, because this death drags all my joy into the tomb, because I can no longer dare to love without remorse, and I feel that he whom I love, oh, it is but just, will repay me with the tortures I have made others undergo. D'Artagnan made no reply. He was too well convinced that she was not mistaken. "'Well, then,' added she, "'dear Monsieur d'Artagnan, do not overwhelm me to-day, I again implore you. I am like the branch torn from the trunk. I no longer hold to anything in this world. A current drags me on, I know not whither. I love madly, even to the point of coming to tell it, wretch that I am, over the ashes of the dead, and I do not blush for it. I have no remorse on this account. Such love is a religion. Only, as hereafter you will see me alone, forgotten, disdained, as you will see me punished, as I am destined to be punished, spare me in my ephemeral happiness. Leave it to me for a few days, for a few minutes. Now, even at the moment I am speaking to you, perhaps it no longer exists. My God! This double murder is perhaps already expiated. While she was speaking thus, the sound of voices and of horses drew the attention of the captain. Monsieur de Saint-Aignan came to seek La Valliere. The king, he said, is a prey to jealousy and uneasiness. Saint-Aignan did not perceive D'Artagnan, half concealed by the trunk of a chestnut tree which shaded the double grave. Louise thanked Saint-Aignan and dismissed him with a gesture. He rejoined the party outside the enclosure. "'You see, madam,' said the captain, bitterly to the young woman, "'you see your happiness still lasts.' The young woman raised her head with a solemn air. "'A day will come,' 
said she, when you will repent of having so misjudged me. On that day, it is I who will pray God to forgive you for having been unjust towards me. Besides, I shall suffer so much that you yourself will be the first to pity my sufferings. Do not reproach me with my fleeting happiness, Monsieur d'Artagnan. It costs me dear, and I have not paid all my debt. Saying these words, she again knelt down, softly and affectionately. "'Pardon me the last time, my affianced Raoul,' said she. "'I have broken our chain. We are both destined to die of grief. It is thou who departest first. Fear nothing, I shall follow thee. See only that I have not been base, and that I have come to bid thee this last adieu. The Lord is my witness, Raoul.' that if with my life I could have redeemed thine, I would have given that life without hesitation. I could not give my love. Once more, forgive me, dearest, kindest friend. She strewed a few sweet flowers on the freshly sodded earth. Then, wiping the tears from her eyes, the heavily stricken lady bowed to D'Artagnan and disappeared. The captain watched the departure of the horses, horsemen, and carriage, then, crossing his arms upon his swelling chest, "'When will it be my turn to depart?' said he, in an agitated voice. "'What is there left for man after youth, love, glory, friendship, strength, and wealth have disappeared? That rock, under which sleeps Porthos, who possessed all I have named, this moss, under which repose Athos and Raoul, who possessed much more. He hesitated for a moment with a dull eye, then, drawing himself up, "'Forward, still forward,' said he. "'When it is time, God will tell me, as he foretold the others.' He touched the earth, moistened with the evening dew, with the ends of his fingers, signed himself as if he had been at the Benitier in church, and retook alone, ever alone." The Road to Paris. End of chapter. Epilogue, Part One, of The Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask. By Alexandre Dumas. Epilogue, Part One. Four years after the scene we have just described, two horsemen, well mounted, traversed Blois early in the morning for the purpose of arranging a hawking party the king had arranged to make in that uneven plain the Loire divides in two, which borders on the one side Meung and on the other Amboise. These were the keeper of the king's harriers and the master of the falcons, personages greatly respected in the time of Louis Thirteenth, but rather neglected by his successor. The horsemen, having reconnoitred the ground, were returning, their observations made, when they perceived certain little groups of soldiers, here and there, whom the sergeants were placing at distances at the openings of the enclosures. These were the king's musketeers. Behind them came, upon a splendid horse, the captain, known by his richly embroidered uniform. His hair was grey, 
his beard turning so. He seemed a little bent, although sitting and handling his horse gracefully. He was looking about him watchfully. "'Monsieur d'Artagnan does not get any older,' said the keeper of the harriers to his colleague the falconer. "'With ten years more to carry than either of us, he has the seat of a young man on horseback.' "'That is true,' replied the falconer. "'I don't see any change in him for the last twenty years.' But this officer was mistaken. D'Artagnan in the last four years had lived a dozen. Age had printed its pitiless claws at each angle of his eyes. His brow was bald. His hands, formerly brown and nervous, were getting white, as if the blood had half forgotten them. D'Artagnan accosted the officers with a shade of affability which distinguishes superiors, and received in turn for his courtesy two most respectful bows. "'Ah, what a lucky chance to see you here, Monsieur d'Artagnan!' cried the falconer. "'It is rather I who should say that, messieurs,' replied the captain, "'for nowadays the king makes more frequent use of his musketeers than of his falcons.' "'Ah, it is not as it was in the good old times,' sighed the falconer. "'Do you remember, Monsieur d'Artagnan, when the late king flew the pie in the vineyards beyond Béjance? Ah!' Tom, you were not the captain of the musketeers at that time, Monsieur d'Artagnan. <laughs> and you were nothing but under-corporal of the Tircelettes, replied d'Artagnan, laughing. Never mind that, it was a good time, seeing that it is always a good time when we are young. Good day, Monsieur le Keeper of the Harriers. You do me honour, Monsieur le Comte, said the latter. D'Artagnan made no reply. The title of Comte had hardly struck him. D'Artagnan had been a comte four years. "'Are you not very much fatigued with the long journey you have taken, Monsieur le Capitaine?' continued the falconer. "'It must be full two hundred leagues from hence to Pignerol.' Two hundred and sixty to go, and as many to return,' said D'Artagnan, quietly. "'And,' said the falconer, "'is he well?' "'Who?' asked D'Artagnan. Why, poor Monsieur Fouquet, continued the falconer, in a low voice. The keeper of the harriers had prudently withdrawn. No, replied D'Artagnan. The poor man frets terribly. He cannot comprehend how imprisonment can be a favour. He says the Parliament absolved him by banishing him, and banishment is, or should be, liberty." He cannot imagine that they had sworn his death, and that to save his life from the clause of Parliament was to be under too much obligation to heaven. Ah, yes, the poor man had a close chance of the scaffold, replied the falconer. It is said that Monsieur Colbert had given orders to the governor of the Bastille, and that the execution was ordered. Enough, said D'Artagnan, pensively and with a view of cutting short the conversation. "'Yes,' said the keeper of the harriers, drawing towards them, "'Monsieur Fouquet is now at Pignoreau. He has richly deserved it. He had the good fortune to be conducted there by you. He robbed the king sufficiently.' D'Artagnan launched at the master of the dogs one of his crossest looks, and said to him, "'Monsieur, if any one told me you had eaten your dog's meat,' Not only would I refuse to believe it, but still more, 
if you were condemned to the lash or to jail for it, I should pity you and would not allow people to speak ill of you. And yet, monsieur, honest man as you may be, I assure you that you are not more so than poor Monsieur Fouquet was. After having undergone this sharp rebuke, the keeper of the harriers hung his head, and allowed the falconer to get two steps in advance of him nearer to D'Artagnan. "'He is content,' said the falconer in a low voice to the musketeer. "'We all know that harriers are in fashion nowadays. If he were a falconer, he would not talk that way.' D'Artagnan smiled in a melancholy manner at seeing this great political question, resolved by the discontent of such humble interest. He for a moment ran over in his mind the glorious existence of the surintendant, the crumbling of his fortunes, and the melancholy death that awaited him, and to conclude, "'Did Monsieur Fouquet love falconry?' said he. "'Oh, passionately, monsieur,' repeated the falconer, with an accent of bitter regret, and a sigh that was the funeral oration of Fouquet." D'Artagnan allowed the ill-humour of the one and the regret of the other to pass, and continued to advance. They could already catch glimpses of the huntsmen at the issue of the wood, the feathers of the outriders passing like shooting-stars across the clearings, and the white horses skirting the bosky thickets looking like illuminated apparitions. "'But,' resumed D'Artagnan, "'will the sport last long?' Pray give us a good swift bird, for I am very tired. Is it a heron or a swan? Both, Monsieur d'Artagnan, said the falconer. But you need not be alarmed. The king is not much of a sportsman. He does not take the field on his own account. He only wishes to amuse the ladies. The words, to amuse the ladies, were so strongly accented they set d'Artagnan thinking. Ah! said he, looking keenly at the falconer. The keeper of the harriers smiled, no doubt with a view of making it up with the musketeer. "'Oh, you may safely laugh,' said D'Artagnan. "'I know nothing of current news. I only arrived yesterday, after a month's absence. I left the court mourning the death of the queen-mother. The king was not willing to take any amusement after receiving the last sigh of Anne of Austria.' but everything comes to an end in this world. Well, then he is no longer sad? So much the better. And everything begins as well as ends, said the keeper with a coarse laugh. Ah, said D'Artagnan, a second time. He burned to know, but dignity would not allow him to interrogate people below him. There is something beginning, then, it seems? The keeper gave him a significant wink, but D'Artagnan was unwilling to learn anything from this man. "'Shall we see the king early?' asked he of the falconer. "'At seven o'clock, monsieur, I shall fly the birds.' "'Who comes with the king? How is madame? How is the queen?' "'Better, monsieur.' "'Has she been ill, then?' "'Monsieur, since the last chagrin she suffered,' Her Majesty has been unwell. What chagrin? You need not fancy your news is old. I have but just returned. It appears that the Queen, a little neglected since the death of her mother-in-law, complained to the King, who answered her, Do I not sleep at home every night, madame? 
What more do you expect? Ah, said D'Artagnan, poor woman, she must heartily hate Mademoiselle de la Valliere. Oh, no, not Mademoiselle de la Valliere, replied the falconer. Who then? The blast of a hunting horn interrupted his conversation. It summoned the dogs and the hawks. The falconer and his companions set off immediately, leaving D'Artagnan alone in the midst of the suspended sentence. The king appeared at a distance, surrounded by ladies and horsemen. All the troop advanced in beautiful order, at a foot's pace, the horns of various sorts animating the dogs and horses. There was an animation in the scene, a mirage of light, of which nothing now can give an idea, unless it be the fictitious splendour of a theatric spectacle. D'Artagnan, with an eye a little, just a little, dimmed by age, distinguished behind the group three carriages. The first was intended for the queen. It was empty. D'Artagnan, who did not see Mademoiselle de la Valliere by the king's side, on looking about for her, saw her in the second carriage. She was alone with two of her women, who seemed as dull as their mistress. On the left hand of the king, upon a high-spirited horse, restrained by a bold and skilful hand, shone a lady of most dazzling beauty. The king smiled upon her, and she smiled upon the king. Loud laughter followed every word she uttered. "'I must know that woman,' thought the musketeer. "'Who can she be?' And he stooped towards his friend, the falconer, to whom he addressed the question he had put to himself. The falconer was about to reply, when the king, perceiving D'Artagnan, "'Ah, Comte!' said he. "'You are among us once more, then. Why have I not seen you?' "'Sire,' replied the captain, "'because your majesty was asleep when I arrived, and not awake when I resumed my duties this morning.' "'Still the same,' said Louis, in a loud voice, denoting satisfaction. "'Take some rest, Comte. I command you to do so. You will dine with me to-day.' A murmur of admiration surrounded D'Artagnan like a caress. Everyone was eager to salute him. Dining with the king was an honour his majesty was not so prodigal of as Henry the Fourth had been. The king passed a few steps in advance, and D'Artagnan found himself in the midst of a fresh group, among whom shone Colbert. "'Good day, Monsieur D'Artagnan,' said the minister, with marked affability. "'Have you had a pleasant journey?' "'Yes, monsieur,' said D'Artagnan, bowing to the neck of his horse. "'I heard the king invite you to his table for this evening,' continued the minister. "'You will meet an old friend there.' "'An old friend of mine?' asked D'Artagnan, plunging painfully into the dark waves of the past, which had swallowed up for him so many friendships and so many hatreds. Monsieur le Duc d'Almeda, who is arrived this morning from Spain. The Duc d'Almeda, said D'Artagnan, reflecting in vain. Here, cried an old man, white as snow, sitting bent in his carriage, which he caused to be thrown open to make room for the musketeer. Aramis, cried D'Artagnan, struck with profound amazement and he felt, inert as it was, the thin arm of the old nobleman hanging round his neck. Colbert, after having observed them in silence for a few moments, 
urged his horse forward, and left the two old friends together. "'And so,' said the musketeer, taking Aramis's arm, "'you, the exile, the rebel, are again in France. "'Ah, and I shall dine with you at the king's table,' said Aramis, smiling. "'Yes, will you not ask yourself what is the use of fidelity in this world? "'Stop. Let us allow poor La Valliere's carriage to pass. "'Look how uneasy she is.' How her eyes, dim with tears, follow the king who is riding on horseback yonder. With whom? With Mademoiselle de Tonnay Charente, now Madame de Montespan, replied Aramis. She is jealous. Is she then deserted? Not quite yet, but it will not be long before she is. They chatted together, while following the sport, and Aramis's coachman drove them so cleverly that they arrived at the instant when the falcon, attacking the bird, beat him down and fell upon him. The king alighted, Madame de Montespan followed his example. They were in front of an isolated chapel, concealed by huge trees, already despoiled of their leaves by the first cutting winds of autumn. Behind this chapel was an enclosure, closed by a latticed gate. The falcon had beaten down his prey in the enclosure belonging to this little chapel, and the king was desirous of going in to take the first feather, according to custom. The cortege formed a circle round the building and the hedges, too small to receive so many. D'Artagnan had held Aramis by the arm, as he was about, like the rest, to alight from his carriage, and in a hoarse, broken voice, "'Do you know, Aramis?' said he. "'Whither chance has conducted us?' "'No,' replied the duke. "'Here repose men that we knew well,' said D'Artagnan, greatly agitated. Aramis, without divining anything, and with a trembling step, penetrated into the chapel by a little door which D'Artagnan opened for him. "'Where are they buried?' said he. "'There, in the enclosure.' There is a cross, you see, beneath yon little cypress. The tree of grief is planted over their tomb. Don't go to it. The king is going that way. The heron has fallen just there. Aramis stopped and concealed himself in the shade. They then saw, without being seen, the pale face of La Falliere, who, neglected in her carriage, at first looked on, with a melancholy heart, from the door, and then carried away by jealousy, advanced into the chapel, whence, leaning against a pillar, she contemplated the king smiling and making signs to Madame de Montespan to approach, as there was nothing to be afraid of. Madame de Montespan complied. She took the hand the king held out to her, and he, plucking out the first feather from the heron, which the falconer had strangled, placed it in his beautiful companion's hat. She, smiling in her turn, kissed the hand tenderly which made her this present. The king grew scarlet with vanity and pleasure. He looked at Madame de Montespan with all the fire of new love. "'What will you give me in exchange?' said he. She broke off a little branch of cypress and offered it to the king, who looked intoxicated with hope. "'Humph!' said Aramis to D'Artagnan. "'The present is but a sad one.' for that cypress shades a tomb. 
"'Yes, and the tomb is that of Raoul de Bragelonne,' said D'Artagnan aloud, "'of Raoul, who sleeps under that cross with his father.' A groan resounded. They saw a woman fall fainting to the ground. Mademoiselle de la Valliere had seen all, heard all. "'Poor woman,' muttered D'Artagnan, as he helped the attendants to carry back to her carriage the lonely lady whose lot henceforth in life was suffering." That evening D'Artagnan was seated at the king's table, near M. Colbert and M. le Duc d'Almeida. The king was very gay. He paid a thousand little attentions to the queen, a thousand kindnesses to Madame, seated at his left hand, and very sad. It might have been supposed that time of calm, when the king was wont to catch his mother's eyes for the approval or disapproval of what he had just done. Of mistresses there was no question at this dinner. The king addressed Aramis two or three times, calling him Monsieur l'Ambassadeur, which increased the surprise already felt by D'Artagnan at seeing his friend the rebel so marvellously well received at court. The king, on rising from table, gave his hand to the queen, and made a sign to Colbert, whose eye was on his master's face. Colbert took D'Artagnan and Aramis on one side. The king began to chat with his sister, whilst Monsieur, very uneasy, entertained the queen with a preoccupied air, without ceasing to watch his wife and brother from the corner of his eye. The conversation between Aramis, D'Artagnan, and Colbert turned upon indifferent subjects. They spoke of preceding ministers. Colbert related the successful tricks of Mazarin, and desired those of Richelieu to be related to him. D'Artagnan could not overcome his surprise at finding this man, with his heavy eyebrows and low forehead, display so much sound knowledge and cheerful spirits. Aramis was astonished at that lightness of character which permitted this serious man to retard with advantage the moment for more important conversation, to which nobody made any allusion, although all three interlocutors felt its imminence. It was very plain— from the embarrassed appearance of Monsieur, how much the conversation of the king and Madame annoyed him. Madame's eyes were almost red. Was she going to complain? Was she going to expose a little scandal in open court? The king took her on one side, and in a tone so tender, that it must have reminded the princess of the time when she was loved for herself. "'Sister,' said he, why do I see tears in those lovely eyes? Why, sire, said she, monsieur is jealous, is he not, sister? She looked towards monsieur, an infallible sign that they were talking about him. Yes, said she. Listen to me, said the king. If your friends compromise you, it is not monsieur's fault. He spoke these words with so much kindness that Madame, encouraged, having borne so many solitary griefs so long, was nearly bursting into tears, so full was her heart. "'Come, come, dear little sister,' said the king. "'Tell me your griefs. On the word of a brother I pity them. On the word of a king I will put an end to them.' She raised her glorious eyes, and, in a melancholy tone, it is not my friends who compromise me, said she. They are either absent or concealed. 
They have been brought into disgrace with your majesty. They, so devoted, so good, so loyal. You say this on account of de Guiche, whom I have exiled, at monsieur's desire? And who, since that unjust exile, has endeavoured to get himself killed once every day. Unjust, say you, sister? So unjust, that if I had not had the respect mixed with friendship that I have always entertained for your majesty. Well? Well, I would have asked my brother Charles, upon whom I can always— The king started. What, then? I would have asked him to have had it represented to you that monsieur and his favourite, monsieur le chevalier de Lorraine, ought not with impunity to constitute themselves the executioners of my honour and my happiness. The chevalier de Lorraine, said the king, that dismal fellow, is my mortal enemy. Whilst that man lives in my household, where monsieur retains him and delegates his power to him, I shall be the most miserable woman in the kingdom. So, said the king, slowly, you call your brother of England a better friend than I am? Actions speak for themselves, sire. And you would prefer going to ask assistance there? To my own country said she with pride. Yes, sire. You are the grandchild of Henry the Fourth, as well as myself, lady. Cousin and brother-in-law, does that not amount pretty well to the title of Brother Germain? Then, said Henrietta, act. Let us form an alliance. Begin. I have, you say, unjustly exiled de Guiche. Oh, yes, said she, blushing. De Guiche shall return. So far, well. And now you say that I do wrong in having in your household the Chevalier de Lorraine, who gives monsieur ill advice respecting you? Remember well what I tell you, sire. The Chevalier de Lorraine some day observe if ever i come to a dreadful end i beforehand accuse the chevalier de lorraine he has a spirit that is capable of any crime the chevalier de lorraine shall no longer annoy you i promise you that then that will be a true preliminary of alliance sire i sign but since you have done your part tell me what shall be mine Instead of embroiling me with your brother Charles, you must make him a more intimate friend than ever. That is very easy. Oh, not quite so easy as you may suppose, for in ordinary friendship people embrace or exercise hospitality, and that only costs a kiss or a return, profitable expenses, but in political friendship, ah! It's a political friendship, is it? Yes, my sister. And then, instead of embraces and feasts, it is soldiers. It is soldiers all alive and well equipped. That we must serve up to our friends. Vessels we must offer. 
all armed with cannons and stored with provisions. It hence results that we have not always coffers in a fit condition for such friendships. Ah, you are quite right, said Madame. The coffers of the King of England have been sonorous for some time. But you, my sister, who have so much influence over your brother, you can secure more than an ambassador could ever get the promise of. To effect that, I must go to London, my dear brother. I have thought so, replied the king eagerly, and I have said to myself that such a voyage would do your health and spirits good. Only, interrupted madame, it is possible I should fail. The king of England has dangerous counsellors. Counsellors, do you say? Precisely. If, by chance, your majesty had any intention, I am only supposing so, of asking Charles the Second his alliance in a war. A war? Yes, well, then the king's counsellors, who are in number seven, Mademoiselle Stuart, Mademoiselle Wells, Mademoiselle Gwynne, Miss Orchet, Mademoiselle Zunga, Miss Davies, and the proud Comtesse of Castlemaine, will represent to the king that war costs a great deal of money, that it is better to give balls and suppers at Hampton Court than to equip ships of the line at Portsmouth and Greenwich. And then your negotiations will fail? Oh, those ladies cause all negotiations to fall through which they don't make themselves. Do you know the idea that has struck me, sister? No. Inform me what it is. It is that, searching well around you, you might perhaps find a female counsellor to take with you to your brother, whose eloquence might paralyse the ill-will of the seven others. That is really an idea, sire, and I will search. You will find what you want. I hope so. A pretty ambassadress is necessary. An agreeable face is better than an ugly one, is it not? Most assuredly. An animated, lively, audacious character? Certainly. Nobility. That is, enough to enable her to approach the king without awkwardness, not too lofty, so as not to trouble herself about the dignity of her race. Very true. And who knows a little English? Mon Dieu! Why, someone, cried Madame, like Mademoiselle de la Carouelle, for instance. Oh, why, yes, said Louis the Fourteenth. You have hit the mark. It is you who have found my sister. I will take her. She will have no cause to complain, I suppose. Oh, no, I will name her Seductrice Plenipotentiaire at once, and will add a dowry to the title. That is well. I fancy you already on your road, my dear little sister, consoled for all your griefs. I will go, on two conditions. The first is, that I shall know what I am negotiating about. That is it, 
The Dutch, you know, insult me daily in their gazettes, and by their republican attitude. I do not like republics. That may easily be imagined, sire. I see with pain that these kings of the sea, they call themselves so, keep trade from France in the Indies, and that their vessels will soon occupy all the ports of Europe. Such a power is too near me, sister. They are your allies, nevertheless. That is why they were wrong in having the medal you have heard of struck, a medal which represents Holland stopping the sun, as Joshua did, with this legend, the sun had stopped before me. There is not much fraternity in that, is there? I thought you had forgotten that miserable episode. I never forget anything, sister. And if my true friends, such as your brother Charles, are willing to second me, the princess remained pensively silent. Listen to me. There is the empire of the seas to be shared, said Louis the Fourteenth. For this partition, which England submits to, could I not represent the second party, as well as the Dutch? We have Mademoiselle de la Carouel to treat that question, replied Madame. Your second condition for going, if you please, sister? The consent of Monsieur, my husband. You shall have it. Then consider me already gone, brother. On hearing these words, Louis the Fourteenth turned round towards the corner of the room in which D'Artagnan, Colbert, and Aramis stood, and made an affirmative sign to his minister. Colbert then broke in on the conversation suddenly, and said to Aramis, Monsieur l'ambassadeur, shall we talk about business? End of part one of the epilogue. Part two of the epilogue of The Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas. Epilogue. Part two. Colbert then broke in on the conversation suddenly and said to Aramis, Monsieur l'ambassadeur, shall we talk about business? D'Artagnan immediately withdrew from politeness. He directed his steps towards the fireplace, within hearing of what the king was about to say to Monsieur, who, evidently uneasy, had gone to him. The face of the king was animated. Upon his brow was stamped a strength of will, the expression of which already met no further contradiction in France, and was soon to meet no more in Europe. "'Monsieur,' said the king to his brother, "'I am not pleased with Monsieur le Chevalier de Lorraine. "'You, who do him the honour to protect him, "'must advise him to travel for a few months.' "'These words fell with the crush of an avalanche upon Monsieur, "'who adored his favourite, "'and concentrated all his affections in him. "'In what has the Chevalier been inconsiderate enough "'to displease your Majesty?' cried he, darting a furious look at Madame. "'I will tell you that when he is gone,' said the king, suavely. 
and also when madame here shall have crossed over into england madame madame in england murmured monsieur in amazement in a week brother continued the king whilst we will go whither i will shortly tell you and the king turned on his heel smiling in his brother's face to sweeten as it were the bitter draught he had given him during this time colbert was talking with the duc d'almeida monsieur said colbert to aramis this is the moment for us to come to an understanding i have made your peace with the king and i owed that clearly to a man of so much merit but as you have often expressed friendship for me an opportunity presents itself for giving me a proof of it you are besides more a frenchman than a spaniard shall we secure answer me frankly the neutrality of spain if we undertake anything against the united provinces monsieur replied aramis the interest of spain is clear to embroil europe with the provinces would doubtless be our policy but the king of france is an ally of the united provinces you are not ignorant, besides, that it would infer a maritime war, and that France is in no state to undertake this with advantage. Colbert, turning round at this moment, saw D'Artagnan, who was seeking some interlocutor, during this aside of the king and monsieur. He called him, at the same time saying in a low voice to Aramis, "'We may talk openly with D'Artagnan, I suppose?' "'Oh, certainly!' said the ambassador we were saying monsieur d'almeda and i said colbert that a conflict with the united provinces would mean a maritime war that's evident enough replied the musketeer and what do you think of it monsieur d'artagnan i think that to carry on such a war successfully you must have very large land forces what did you say said colbert thinking he had ill understood him why such a large land army said aramis because the king will be beaten by sea if he has not the english with him and that when beaten by sea he will soon be invaded either by the dutch in his ports or by the spaniards by land and spain neutral asked aramis neutral as long as the king shall prove stronger rejoined d'artagnan Colbert admired that sagacity which never touched a question without enlightening it thoroughly. Aramis smiled, as he had long known that in diplomacy D'Artagnan acknowledged no superior. Colbert, who, like all proud men, dwelt upon his fantasy with a certainty of success, resumed the subject. "'Who told you, Monsieur D'Artagnan, that the king had no navy?' "'Oh, I take no heed of these details.' replied the captain i am but an indifferent sailor like all nervous people i hate the sea and yet i have an idea that with ships france being a seaport with two hundred exits we might have sailors colbert drew from his pocket a little oblong book divided into two columns on the first were the names of vessels on the other the figures recapitulating the number of cannon and men requisite to equip these ships i have had the same idea as you 
said he to D'Artagnan, and I have had an account drawn up of the vessels we have all together. Thirty-five ships. Thirty-five ships? Impossible! cried D'Artagnan. Something like two thousand pieces of cannon, said Colbert. That is what the king possesses at this moment. Of five and thirty vessels we can make three squadrons, but I must have five. Five! cried Aramis. They will be afloat before the end of the year, gentlemen. The king will have fifty ship of the line. We may venture on a contest with them, may we not? To build vessels, said D'Artagnan, is difficult, but possible. As to arming them, how is that to be done? In France there are neither foundries nor military docks. Bah, replied Colbert in a bantering tone, I have planned all that this year and a half past. Did you not know it? Do you know Monsieur D'Amfreville? D'Amfreville, replied D'Artagnan, no. He is a man I have discovered. He has a specialty. He is a man of genius. He knows how to set men to work. It is he who has cast cannon and cut the words of Bourgogne. And then, Monsieur l'Ambassadeur, you may not believe what I am going to tell you, but I have a still further idea. Oh, monsieur, said Aramis, civilly, I always believe you. Calculating upon the character of the Dutch, our allies, I said to myself, they are merchants, they are friendly with the king, they will be happy to sell to the king what they fabricate for themselves, then the more we buy, ah! I must add this. I have Forant. Do you know Forant, d'Artagnan? Colbert, in his warmth, forgot himself. He called the captain simply d'Artagnan, as the king did. But the captain only smiled at it. No, replied he. I do not know him. That is another man I have discovered, with a genius for buying. This Ferrant has purchased for me three hundred fifty thousand pounds of iron in balls, two hundred thousand pounds of powder, twelve cargoes of northern timber, matches, grenades, pitch, tar, I know not what, with a saving of seven per cent upon what all those articles would cost me fabricated in France. That is a capital and quaint idea, replied D'Artagnan to have Dutch cannonballs cast which will return to the Dutch. "'Is it not with loss, too?' And Colbert laughed aloud. He was delighted with his own joke. "'Still further,' added he, "'these same Dutch are building for the king, at this moment, six vessels after the model of the best of their name. Détouche. Ah, perhaps you don't know Détouche?' "'No, monsieur.' He is a man who has a sure glance to discern, when a ship is launched, what are the defects and qualities of that ship. That is valuable, observe. Nature is truly whimsical. Well, this Détouche appeared to me to be a man likely to prove useful in marine affairs, and he is superintending the construction of six vessels of seventy-eight guns, which the provinces are building for His Majesty." It results from this, my dear Monsieur d'Artagnan, that the king, if he wished to quarrel with the provinces, 
would have a very pretty fleet. Now, you know better than anybody else if the land army is efficient. D'Artagnan and Aramis looked at each other, wondering at the mysterious labors this man had undertaken in so short a time. Colbert understood them, and was touched by this best of flatteries. "'If we, in France, were ignorant of what was going on,' said D'Artagnan, "'out of France still less must be known.' "'That is what I told Monsieur l'Ambassadeur,' said Colbert, "'that Spain promising its neutrality, England helping us.' "'If England assists you,' said Aramis, "'I promise the neutrality of Spain.' "'I take you at your word,' Colbert hastened to reply with his blunt bonhomie. "'And, a propos of Spain, you have not the golden fleece, Monsieur d'Almeida. I heard the king say the other day that he should like to see you wear the grand cordon of St. Michael.' Aramis bowed. "'Oh!' thought D'Artagnan. "'And Porthos is no longer here.' What ells of ribbons would there be for him in these largesse? Dear Porthos! Monsieur d'Artagnan, resumed Colbert, between us two, you will have, I wager, an inclination to lead your musketeers into Holland. Can you swim? And he laughed like a man in high good humor. Like an eel, replied d'Artagnan. Ah! but there are some bitter passages of canals and marshes yonder, Monsieur d'Artagnan, and the best swimmers are sometimes drowned there. It is my profession to die for his majesty, said the musketeer, only, as it is seldom in war that much water is met with without a little fire, I declare to you beforehand that I will do my best to choose fire. I am getting old. Water freezes me but fire warms, Monsieur Colbert. And D'Artagnan looked so handsome, still in quasi-juvenile strength, as he pronounced these words, that Colbert, in his turn, could not help admiring him. D'Artagnan perceived the effect he had produced. He remembered that the best tradesman is he who fixes a high price upon his goods when they are valuable. He prepared his price in advance. So then said Colbert. We go into Holland? Yes, replied D'Artagnan. Only... Only? said Monsieur Colbert. Only, repeated D'Artagnan, there lurks in everything the question of interest, the question of self-love. It is a very fine title, that of Captain of the Musketeers, but observe this. We have now the King's Guards and the military household of the king. A captain of musketeers ought to command all that, and then he would absorb a hundred thousand livres a year for expenses. Well, but do you suppose the king would haggle with you? said Colbert. Eh, monsieur, you have not understood me, replied D'Artagnan, sure of carrying his point. I was telling you that I, an old captain, formerly chief of the king's guard, having precedence of the Marechaux of France, I saw myself one day in the trenches with two other equals, the captain of the guards and the colonel commanding the Swiss. Now at no price will I suffer that. I have old habits, and I will stand or fall by them. 
Colbert felt this blow, but he was prepared for it. "'I have been thinking of what you said just now,' replied he. "'About what, monsieur?' "'We were speaking of canals and marshes in which people are drowned.' "'Well?' "'Well, if they are drowned, it is for want of a boat, a plank, or a stick.' "'Of a stick, however short it may be,' said D'Artagnan. "'Exactly,' said Colbert. "'And therefore I never heard of an instance of a marechal of France being drowned.' D'Artagnan became very pale with joy, and in a not very firm voice. "'People would be very proud of me in my country,' said he, "'if I were a marechal of France. But a man must have commanded an expedition in chief to obtain the baton.' "'Monsieur,' said Colbert, "'here is, in this pocket-book which you will study, a plan of campaign you will have to lead a body of troops to carry out in the next spring. D'Artagnan took the book tremblingly, and his fingers meeting those of Colbert, the minister pressed the hand of the musketeer loyally. Monsieur, said he, we had both a revenge to take, one over the other. I have begun. It is now your turn. I will do you justice, monsieur replied D'Artagnan, and implore you to tell the king that the first opportunity that shall offer, he may depend upon a victory, or to behold me dead, or both. Then I will have the fleur-de-lis for your marechal's baton prepared immediately, said Colbert. On the morrow, Aramis, who was setting out for Madrid, to negotiate the neutrality of Spain, came to embrace D'Artagnan at his hotel. Let us love each other for four, said D'Artagnan. We are now but two. And you will, perhaps, never see me again, dear D'Artagnan, said Aramis, if you knew how I have loved you. I am old. I am extinct. Ah, I am almost dead. My friend, said D'Artagnan, you will live longer than I shall. Diplomacy commands you to live. But for my part, honor condemns me to die. Bah! Such men as we are, Monsieur le Marechal, said Aramis, only die satisfied with joy in glory. Ah! replied D'Artagnan, with a melancholy smile. I assure you, Monsieur le Duc, I feel very little appetite for either. They once more embraced, and, two hours after, separated, forever. The death of D'Artagnan. Contrary to that which generally happens, whether in politics or morals, each kept his promises and did honour to his engagements. The king recalled Monsieur de Guiche, and banished Monsieur le Chevalier de Lorraine, so that Monsieur became ill in consequence. Madame set out for London, where she applied herself so earnestly to make her brother, Charles II, acquire a taste for the political counsels of Mademoiselle de Caroual, that the alliance between England and France was signed, and the English vessels, ballasted by a few millions of French gold, made a terrible campaign against the fleets of the United Provinces. Charles II had promised Mademoiselle de Caroual a little gratitude for her good counsels, 
he made her Duchess of Portsmouth. Colbert had promised the king vessels, munitions, victories. He kept his word, as is well known. At length Aramis, upon whose promises there was least dependence to be placed, wrote Colbert the following letter, on the subject of the negotiations which he had undertaken at Madrid. Monsieur Colbert, I have the honour to expedite to you the R. P. Oliva, general ad interim of the Society of Jesus, my provisional successor. The Reverend Father will explain to you, Monsieur Colbert, that I preserve to myself the direction of all the affairs of the order which concern France and Spain, but that I am not willing to retain the title of general, which would throw too high a sidelight on the progress of the negotiations with which his Catholic Majesty wishes to entrust me. I shall resume that title, by the command of his Majesty, when the labours I have undertaken in concert with you, for the great glory of God and his Church, shall be brought to a good end. The R. P. Oliva will inform you likewise, monsieur, of the consent his Catholic Majesty gives to the signature of a treaty which assures the neutrality of Spain in the event of a war between France and the United Provinces. This consent will be valid even if England, instead of being active, should satisfy herself with remaining neutral. As for Portugal, of which you and I have spoken, monsieur, I can assure you it will contribute with all its resources to assist the most Christian king in his war. I beg you, monsieur Colbert, to preserve your friendship, and also to believe in my profound attachment, and to lay my respect at the feet of his most Christian majesty. Signed, Le Duc d'Almeida. Aramis had performed more than he had promised. It remained to be seen how the king, Monsieur Colbert, and D'Artagnan would be faithful to each other. In the spring, as Colbert had predicted, the land army entered on its campaign. It preceded, in magnificent order, the court of Louis the Fourteenth, who, setting out on horseback, surrounded by carriages filled with ladies and courtiers, conducted the elite of his kingdom to the sanguinary fete. The officers of the army, it is true, had no other music save the artillery of the Dutch forts, but it was enough for a great number who found in this war honour, advancement, fortune, or death. Monsieur d'Artagnan set out commanding a body of twelve thousand men, cavalry and infantry, with which he was ordered to take the different places which formed knots of that strategic network called La Frise. Never was an army conducted more gallantly to an expedition. The officers knew that their leader, prudent and skilful as he was brave, would not sacrifice a single man, nor yield an inch of ground without necessity. He had the old habits of war, to live upon the country, keeping his soldiers singing and the enemy weeping. The captain of the king's musketeers well knew his business. Never were opportunities better chosen, coup de main better supported, errors of the besieged more quickly taken advantage of. The army commanded by D'Artagnan took twelve small places within a month. He was engaged in besieging the thirteenth, which had held out five days. D'Artagnan caused the trenches to be opened without appearing to suppose that these people would ever allow themselves to be taken. 
the pioneers and laborers were, in the army of this man, a body full of ideas and zeal, because their commander treated them like soldiers, knew how to render their work glorious, and never allowed them to be killed if he could help it. It should have been seen with what eagerness the marshy glebes of Holland were turned over. Those turf-heaps, mounds of potter's clay, melted at the word of the soldiers like butter in the frying-pans of Friesland housewives. M. d'Artagnan dispatched a courier to the king to give him an account of the last success, which redoubled the good humour of his majesty and his inclination to amuse the ladies. These victories of M. d'Artagnan gave so much majesty to the prince, that Madame de Montespan no longer called him anything but Louis the Invincible, so that Mademoiselle de la Valliere, who only called the king Louis the Victorious, lost much of his majesty's favour. Besides, her eyes were frequently red, and to an invincible nothing is more disagreeable than a mistress who weeps while everything is smiling round her. The star of Mademoiselle de la Valliere was being drowned in clouds and tears. But the gaiety of Madame de Montespan redoubled with the successes of the king, and consoled him for every other unpleasant circumstance. It was to D'Artagnan the king owed this, and his majesty was anxious to acknowledge these services. He wrote to Monsieur Colbert. Monsieur Colbert, we have a promise to fulfil with Monsieur D'Artagnan, who so well keeps his. This is to inform you that the time has come for performing it. All provisions for this purpose you shall be furnished with in due time. Louis. In consequence of this, Colbert, detaining D'Artagnan's envoy, placed in the hands of that messenger a letter from himself and a small coffer of ebony inlaid with gold, not very important in appearance, but which, without doubt, was very heavy, as a guard of five men was given to the messenger to assist him in carrying it. These people arrived before the place which D'Artagnan was besieging towards daybreak, and presented themselves at the lodgings of the general. They were told that M. d'Artagnan, annoyed by a sortie which the governor, an artful man, had made the evening before, and in which the works had been destroyed and seventy-seven men killed, and the reparation of the breaches commenced, had just gone with twenty companies of grenadiers to reconstruct the works. M. Colbert's envoy had orders to go and seek M. d'Artagnan, wherever he might be, and at whatever hour of the day or night. He directed his course, therefore, towards the trenches, followed by his escort, all on horseback. They perceived M. d'Artagnan in the open plain, with his gold-laced hat, his long cane, and gilt cuffs. He was biting his white moustache, and wiping off, with his left hand, the dust which the passing balls threw up from the ground they ploughed so near him. They also saw, amidst this terrible fire, which filled the air with whistling hisses, officers handling the shovel, soldiers rolling barrows, and vast fascines, rising by being either carried or dragged by from ten to twenty men, covered the front of the trench, reopened to the centre, by this extraordinary effort of the general. In three hours all was reinstated. D'Artagnan began to speak more mildly, 
and he became quite calm when the captain of the pioneers approached him, hat in hand, to tell him that the trench was again in proper order. This man had scarcely finished speaking when a ball took off one of his legs, and he fell into the arms of D'Artagnan. The latter lifted up his soldier, and quietly, with soothing words, carried him into the trench, amidst the enthusiastic applause of the regiments. From that time it was no longer a question of valour. The army was delirious. Two companies stole away to the advance post, which they instantly destroyed. When their comrades, restrained with great difficulty by D'Artagnan, saw them lodged upon the bastions, they rushed forward likewise, and soon a furious assault was made upon the counterscarp, upon which depended the safety of the place. D'Artagnan perceived there was only one means left of checking his army, to take the place. He directed all his force to the two breaches, where the besieged were busy in repairing. The shock was terrible. Eighteen companies took part in it, and D'Artagnan went with the rest, within half-cannon-shot of the place, to support the attack by Echelon. The cries of the Dutch, who were being poignarded upon their guns by D'Artagnan's grenadiers, were distinctly audible. The struggle grew fiercer with the despair of the governor, who disputed his position foot by foot. D'Artagnan, to put an end to the affair, and to silence the fire which was unceasing, sent a fresh column, which penetrated like a very wedge, and he soon perceived upon the ramparts, through the fire, the terrified flight of the besieged, pursued by the besiegers. At this moment the general, breathing freely and full of joy, heard a voice behind him saying, "'Monsieur, if you please, from Monsieur Colbert.' He broke the seal of the letter which contained these words. "'Monsieur d'Artagnan, the king commands me to inform you that he has nominated you Marechal of France as a reward for your magnificent services, and the honour you do to his arms. The king is highly pleased, monsieur, with the captures you have made. He commands you, in particular, to finish the siege you have commenced with good fortune to you and success for him. D'Artagnan was standing with a radiant countenance and sparkling eye. He looked up to watch the progress of his troops upon the walls, still enveloped in red and black volumes of smoke. "'I have finished,' replied he to the messenger. "'The city will have surrendered in a quarter of an hour.' He then resumed his reading. "'The coffret, Monsieur D'Artagnan, is my own present.' You will not be sorry to see that, whilst you warriors are drawing the sword to defend the king, I am moving the Pacific arts to ornament a present worthy of you. I commend myself to your friendship, Monsieur le Marechal, and beg you to believe in mine. Colbert. D'Artagnan, intoxicated with joy, made a sign to the messenger, who approached with his coffret in his hands. But at the moment the marechal was going to look at it, a loud explosion resounded from the ramparts and called his attention towards the city. "'It is strange,' said D'Artagnan, "'that I don't yet see the king's flag on the walls, or hear the drums beat the chamade.' He launched three hundred fresh men, under a high-spirited officer, and ordered another breach to be made. Then, more tranquilly, he turned towards the coffret, 
which Colbert's envoy held out to him. It was his treasure. He had won it. D'Artagnan was holding out his hand to open the coffret, when a ball from the city crushed the coffret in the arms of the officer, struck D'Artagnan full in the chest, and knocked him down upon a sloping heap of earth, whilst the fleur-de-lis baton, escaping from the broken box, came rolling under the powerless hand of the marechal. D'Artagnan endeavoured to raise himself. It was thought he had been knocked down without being wounded. A terrible cry broke from the group of terrified officers. The marechal was covered with blood. The pallor of death ascended slowly to his noble countenance. Leaning upon the arms held out on all sides to receive him, he was able once more to turn his eyes toward the place, and to distinguish the white flag at the crest of the principal bastion. His ears, already deaf to the sounds of life, caught feebly the rolling of the drum which announced the victory. Then, clasping in his nerveless hand the baton, ornamented with its fleur-de-lis, he cast on it his eyes, which had no longer the power of looking upwards towards heaven, and fell back, murmuring strange words, which appeared to the soldiers cabalistic, words which had formerly represented so many things on earth, and which none but the dying man any longer comprehended. Athos, Porthos, farewell till we meet again. Aramis, adieu forever. Of the four valiant men whose history we have related, there now remained but one. Heaven had taken to itself three noble souls. This is the end of the man in the iron mask. This is the last text in the series. Thank you for listening.